You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 454. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host Captain Jeff broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 26th of December, 2020, or as it's better known, Jeff's birthday. Yeah, he's up in the sky. Today's episode, two airline passengers escape from the cabin by emergency slide just before takeoff. The NTSB is out with disturbing findings from last year's fatal crash of a vintage bomber during a sightseeing flight. More news, your feedback, and today's plain tale of Christmas story. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 454 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger Stern, an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, and... Joining me today from across the pond and the beautiful English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain, no, retired captain for an international airline based in London, is Captain Nick. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Jeffrey, yay, yay. happy birthday, happy birthday to, to me, thank <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> well done, great to be here, uh, retired or otherwise, uh, and uh, what a fantastic day, your birthday, brilliant. Yeah, what, well what, I can't what think, what um, pardon? What have you got for birthday presents? Uh, you get a cake and... I got a lump of coal and um, <laughs> a shovel to... Shovel all the stuff that I okay. put out there. Yeah, um, I, I don't yeah. know yet. I haven't uh, haven't opened presents yet, so I'm not sure. Right. I'm so excited to find well, out. Good luck. I hope you get something nice. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <sighs> yeah. So um, it's my birthday. I am starting my 63rd year, which means I am 62 years old, and I'm still alive. Yay! So. Uh, three years to retirement, compulsory yep. retirement. Three years, yeah, compulsory retirement. Perhaps, maybe not a full three years left in my career. I don't know. Just found out some new I'm from news from my co-pilot I'm flying with today that uh, that maybe the airplane will be around for another two. And I'm thinking, I don't want oh, to go back to school handy. again. <laughs> I know. So <laughs> ah, they wouldn't send you back to school. For I don't know. Year, he, he said that uh, he he's a, 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 an instructor in the training department, and he said that he uh, actually had some guys in there that were part of the ver, uh, the the voluntary early out program, and uh, they were still in training. So. Oh, wow. I don't know. Oh. We'll have to play it by ear. But uh, anyway, potentially another three years to go. 
maybe less. Well, all we'll you see. need to do is to fail the um, the course about four times, and that'll be they'll run out of time. I'm thinking that I might just feel a little ill or something. You know? <laughs> yes. I don't know. Anyway, I'll do like uh, I did, uh, and I I, uh, I wrenched my back and damaged myself, and never flew again. Oh, okay. I'll have to. I'll have to get the uh, the briefing from you on that. But, yeah, that's right. Hoping- it involves writhing around on the floor of the shower. Oh, no. Uh, half drowning and screaming in agony. But apart from that, it was fine. You know what, though? Now that we've done this on a like a, a worldwide podcast, I can't use the back thing. I'm going to have to think of something else. Oh, yeah, well. yeah, yeah. Could, yeah. We'll see something what, else will work fine. See what we can come up with. In the meantime, Do why don't we says- cover some news? Oh, okay. Stand by for news. Thank you, Paul Harvey. All right. First one. Now, you may remember us talking about this uh, not long after this occurred. And this uh, event, wow, I can't believe it's been that long ago. Uh, The final report was just issued. Uh, This happened on the 4th of April, 2011. Um, So I guess it was before I did the show with a co-host. It was just when I was doing it. Um, on my own, I don't know. Do you re- do you recall this um, incident as it happened, or shortly after it happened, Nick? Or no, I don't, Jeff. I mean, ten years ago is yeah. a hell of a long time, and it was. It is actually formally an accident, but yeah. Um, you know, the airplane, no one died, so you know, it wouldn't have probably crossed you know my consciousness unless yeah. I'd specifically heard of it. Well. Let's uh, review. Jeff, I need to interrupt you right now. So okay. Nasha has something very important yeah, here I'm definitely. going to share with you. Okay. Steph could write you a doctor's note. Oh. For your last year old? Yeah. Well, now, see, yeah, but again. No one would be able to read it. But see, again, guys, we're on, like, on the air here. And people can see all this and go back to it. And then the lawyers get involved. And then now I'm in big trouble. I guess I'm just going to edit it and post. I can edit it and post, yeah, and bring this video down before anybody <laughs> sees it. <laughs> I'm hosed. Sorry, back I guess back. I'm just going to have to hang around until three years from uh, Could be. a couple of weeks ago or about a week ago. No, today. <laughs> three years from today. Okay. Um, I'm getting with the picture or the program. Uh, final report, United Airlines Airbus A320-200 registration, November 409 UA, performing flight 497 from New Orleans, Louisiana to San Francisco, California, with 104 passengers and five crew was in the initial climb when the crew reported smoke in the cockpit. They leveled off at 5,000 feet and returned to New Orleans. The crew reported before joining downwind that they had lost all instruments and requested to be talked down by ATC via precision approach radar, or what we like to say, PAR. The crew descended to 600 feet, where they got visual contact with the water of Lake Pontchartrain and continued visually for a landing on runway 19 about 10 minutes after departure. During landing, the aircraft blew both right and main gear tires went left off the runway, stopped with all gear just off the paved surface north of the intersection of runway 1028, 
and was evacuated via slides. A number of passengers needed medical attention due to smoke inhalation, which is kind of odd. This is the original narrative right after it happened, and we're going to talk about a little bit about the, the, the final report and the fact that there were no injuries. In fact, there wasn't actually no smoke at all, but they still needed medical attention due to smoke inhalation. That's weird. Anyway, uh, post-landing photos show the Ram Air Turbine, the RAT, deployed. Runway 119 was closed for about 10 hours after the event. The crew told passengers that they had lost all electronics and were flying on minimal backup systems. Landing would occur overweight with minimal braking and minimal steering ability. At the time of the emergency, runway 1028, the primary runway, the longer runway that is, um, was not available. It was closed and there were there was some construction going on there. Frantic attempts by a tower to get the runway cleared during the emergency proved unsuccessful and the runway was cleared and opened about 10 minutes after United 497 had landed. The NTSB reported on April 4th that the crew received automated warnings and observed smoke in the cockpit while climbing through 4,000 feet. Subsequently, they reported the loss of primary instruments. Upon landing, they experienced the loss of anti-skid and nose wheel steering and went off the left side of the runway about 2,000 feet down the runway. Actually, it uh, was closer to 2,000 feet from the other end of the runway. Uh, on April 6th, the NTSB reported the airplane went off the left side of the runway about 2,000 feet before the runway end. Okay, there they made their con- correction there. Um, let's just... Um, Well, here, let me continue. On April 7th, the NTSB said the crew recalled receiving an autothrottle-related ECAM message while climbing through 4,000 feet, shortly followed by an avionics smoke warning with the instruction to land. Despite this message, neither crew recalled smelling smoke or fumes during the flight. Now, didn't they just say that going through 4,000 feet, they had smoke in the cockpit? Yeah, a lot of contradictions here in the testimony from the crew, I'm afraid. It's yeah, kind of strange. Despite this message, neither okay. Uh, the captain worked the electronic checklist for the avionics smoke warning, which included shutting down some of the electrical systems. The first officer's display screens went blank. The ECAM messenger messages disappeared. The cockpit to cabin intercom stopped functioning, and the air-driven generator rat deployed. Captain took control of the aircraft, managed the radios while the first officer opened the cockpit door to advise flight attendants. The crew requested runway 10, but was advised it was unavailable due to construction vehicles on the runway. The captain was able to use airspeed altimeter and attitude information during the return to the airport and ordered an evacuation after landing. Uh, The cabin crew did not smell smoke or fumes, nor did they observe haze, but noticed that the cabin lights were turned off and the intercom ceased functioning. Cockpit voice and flight data recorders were downloaded. They both stopped recording prior to landing. Following the landing, ATIS and following the landing, ATIS announced a disabled aircraft 300 feet northeast of the runway. Well, okay. Um, so Simon in the Aviation Herald uh, found the uh, final report. He says, sometime in the past, <laughs> the NTSB released their final report, including the probable cause of the accident was. So this has probably been out for a while, uh, but just came to Simon's attention. Uh, the probable cause of the accident was the captain's failure to properly recognize and manage the abnormal condition, resulting in it escalating to an in-flight emergency. Uh, so, 
and it goes. It, we'll have the whole report here in the um, in the show notes. Um, it's quite long, um, but now correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Nick. You you have looked through this um, narrative and report, and it seems to me that it, before the crew came to the airplane, that during the night when it was sitting overnight, something happened that triggered some kind of an ecam message and they yeah, it, didn't it, notice it it appears uh, from the analysis of uh, how the ecam uh, message of avionics smoke so uh, beneath the uh, flight deck is where all the electrical boxes radios um, inertial navigation systems all that kind of stuff all the electronics that uh, run a lot of the systems on the aircraft are in an avionics bay beneath the cockpit uh, and um, the air that uh, is flowing through that which actually comes from the cockpit goes through the instrument panel down below and then uh, exits the back of the avionics bay um, and keeps it all cool uh, is always um, there's a smoke detector in that uh, exit so that if there is any smoke being created in the avionics bay, it's immediately led to the flight deck. Now, it appears that some previous time that warning had been triggered um, and somebody um, actioned or cancelled it, but it was still there, it's still flagged, and uh, one of the first things the captain is supposed to do when he gets on the flight deck, he has about half a dozen initial actions, one of which is to press a button that can on the central ECAM called the recall button, and it recalls any residue messages that might have been pushed out of the way to see if there's anything left in the system that needs dealing with. Uh, and had the captain done that, this warning would have appeared and he presumably would have gone, oh, that's not supposed to be there. Get the engineers in. I want to find out why this has happened. Yeah, we need to investigate said this. that. Exactly. There are two other lights that will appear in the overhead panel um, to do with the ventilation system of that avionics space. So when that warning goes, it does a few things. It sh moves a few valves to ensure that all the air from the avionics bay is exited straight from the aircraft and not recirculated into the uh, pressurization uh, and air conditioning system. It's just pushed straight out of the airplane. And if those valves have moved, the warning lights will indicate on the top panel. Now, those not familiar with an Airbus won't realise that when the cockpit's set up correctly for takeoff, um, apart from uh, some switches which we have in certain positions uh, just for a short period the entire top panel will be lights out that's the design of it it's designed that you glance up there if there's a light on something is in the wrong position or you've deliberately selected something for a short period uh, and two of those lights would have been on indicating uh, that the ventilation system beneath their feet uh, had been set up or was in a in, in a different position to normal so that would have been right one of the first indications but it appears that the crew didn't spot either of those the captain didn't do his checks right and they didn't look at that top panel and wonder why those warnings run yeah and the report says investigators were un were unable to find any condition in which the caution could be recorded on the flight data recorder but not displayed to the crew 
Therefore, although the incident flight crew was not aware of the avionics smoke event prior to takeoff, investigators could not determine the reason for this. So uh, Now, it's quite common for certain warnings to be initiated. Mm-hmm. And if there's no good reason for it, particularly if you're setting up the cockpit, the engineers will often come in and they'll do an SCDC reset, uh, a smoke detector, control, <laughs> computer uh, reset, and it'll zero out all the smoke detection systems and allow them to come live again as if it's a, a, a fresh situation. And if the problem exists, then the warning will reoccur. If it was just a, a glitch, uh, then it won't. So quite often we get a uh, perhaps a smoke warning from a, uh, the cabin uh, or they're doing a test of the crew rest module, the smoke detection's there and it triggers it. We'll have to do a reset of that to get rid of the flags that have come up. And that's probably all that was required for maintenance to get rid of that uh, uh, warning because it's it's assumed and the NTSB have uh, investigated it that that was a spurious warning of avionics smoke. Okay. So, so you're thinking that these messages were not then being displayed to the crew? They would have been pushed out of view. Okay. They were still there. Okay. Uh, oh, because you didn't review everything. Out of the system. They just weren't visible to the crew on the, on the ECAM. That's gotcha. what the function of pressing the recall button is, gotcha. to bring them back into view. Okay. Um, to make sure that the system doesn't have any residual warnings still flagged from a a, lot, a period on the ground or, or a peri- for previous flight or something. But okay. it appears they didn't do that. Then if I'm understanding this correctly, um, so once they initiated the takeoff and they're in their initial climb, something caused these messages to be recalled. And yeah. then all of a sudden they go, oh, this is uh, something that's happening right now. We have avionics smoke. Um, I need to run the checklist. And yeah, no, it's interesting. Uh, uh, the, the recall happened at 1,500 feet. Uh, now, there are different stages of flight in the Airbus uh, during which certain messages will be displayed and uh, others will be suppressed because they want the crew to concentrate on, number one, job flying the airplane and getting warnings that aren't vital at that point mm-hmm. um, are, are not helpful. Right. So it, 1,500 feet is one of those trigger altitudes and at that point, obviously, the ECAM thought, well, I've got this message here. I should display it now for the crew. Uh, and so it came back up into view. But what is interesting is a message that appears fresh will have a master caution light associated with it, and it'll chime. So if you get a, if you get a smoke warning, it'll ring the bells. The message just won't quietly appear Mm-hmm. Uh, on the memo pad, it will it will ring all the <laughs> it will ring the bells and get your attention. Okay, but that didn't happen. All that happened was this message reappeared from below. Huh. So he almost treated it as if the master caution, master warning, came on to indicate that there's something going on with these related messages, but it didn't really happen that way. No, it, you know, it, he, it should have triggered a, a question mark in his head. Hang on, what's this going? warning? Yeah. Why did the master caution go off? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the, the other two things over his head, the vent blower and the vent extract, mm-hmm. um, should, you know, should have perhaps by that time been going, 
well, this, this airplane isn't set up quite right. There's something wrong here. Mm-hmm. But instead, um, the crew, specifically the captain, thinks that this is something that's happening right now. It's an urgent situation. Um, in fact, he even said that um, something to the effect that uh, the reason why he went into this right away and tried to do something about this without actually just, you know, winding his watch and thinking about what's happening. He said he didn't want to uh, be the next value jet. Now value jet was a DC nine that had a fire in one of the uh, cargo compartments. And um, basically the whole airplane caught on fire. They lost control and they crashed in the Everglades. That was back in 1998. No, actually in 1996. Um, so he's thinking, it's a fire situation. I need to get on the ground as soon as I can. We need to start getting this thing taken care of. Uh, not a lot of great CRM from the captain with his first officer. The, he, he doesn't really get specific about what he's, what he's seeing on the ECAM and what checklist that he's doing. He just basically tells the first officer that he has the airplane and get us back on the ground as soon as we can or as soon as he can, yeah. something to that effect. There, there are a few actions here which are normally obligatory in this situation. The first is that uh, we enter quite a formal statement procedure regarding what has come on the ECAM, and uh, we declare what the problem is, and both pilots have to look at it and agree that the, the problem they're about to deal with is, um, that is something they both recognize, it, and they're both on the same page, as it were. Uh, so it's partly to keep both members of the crew together so that they, everyone on the flight deck, there's only two of them, uh, know what's going on. But the captain didn't do this vital step. So they didn't have any discussion about the warning, how it appeared, what other symptoms there were. Could they confirm uh, its uh, veracity? Um, mm-hmm. So the captain just said, you fly the airplane. I'm going to deal with this. And off he went on his own, which is probably not the best thing. You've got a great resource sitting beside you, another fully trained pilot. And if he has missed something, there's a possibility that his first officer might have uh, tweaked that this this wasn't quite what they were going to assume it was and uh, had pulled the captain and stopped him from doing some of the things he did. Mm -hmm. And so the captain went and... uh, sort of ran a checklist but didn't wasn't very thorough and deliberate about it and would get to a certain place and then skip certain steps and and essentially creating a, a situation that wasn't an emergency to begin with and ended up creating quite a serious in-flight emergency uh, based on him not following the proper steps in the checklists. And and I don't know, maybe you can give a little bit more detail on that. Yeah, to be fair, this checklist is actually uh, several uh, conditions that might occur. Uh, Avionics, uh, fire, smoke in the cabin, um, smoke from the uh, air packs, the pressurization system, they're all sort of combined into one checklist. So it's a generic checklist for any source of smoke or fire in the in the aircraft. Um, so uh, it it needs you need to look at it with a little bit of time and analyze it because the analysis is vital, and there are lots of 
indications in there, lots of actions that may not apply to what you're about to do. Um, uh, and one of which is quite important is that um, with regards to avionic smoke, you only go further if you have a second indication that the airplane uh, or the avionics has smoke there. So you need to have some other symptom, and it's usually smoke. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what it's come from. Uh, avionics smoke, all that, it's right underneath the cockpit. It could be coming from a piece of kit that's uh, right at there on the instrument panel or on the consoles. Um, it could be coming from below, but you want to know that there is actually smoke there because the drill you're about to go into can um, put you in a very difficult situation with regards to flying the airplane, as we're about to see. And the one thing that the crew have already said is they couldn't smell or see any smoke. But they, the captain pressed ahead with this checklist, and by jumping ahead and jumping some fairly important steps, he went straight into an area of diagnosis. Now, if you've got electrical problems on the airplane and putting electricity into a particular box is causing it to smoke and possibly catch fire, um, what you can do, and this is primarily aimed at aircraft that are like halfway across the Atlantic, you've got hours to go. You've got to control this smoke because you've got to continue to fly for several hours before you can put the airplane on the ground. So you want to diagnose it and isolate the electricity to that system. If you are... 10 minutes from being able to throw the airplane on the ground, there really is not a lot that's going to go really wrong. Uh, and, tr- and if you don't know exactly where it's coming from, this diagnosis can be complicated. For a start, if you turn off some of the electrics to the airplane, it could take five minutes for whatever it is that's smoking to stop smoking. And then another five minutes for you to go, has that stopped smoking now? Yeah, I haven't seen any smoke now for a couple of minutes. All right, well, we've obviously found the problem area. Let's leave that turned off. Uh, In their situation, by the time that 10 minutes have passed, they were going to have the airplane back on the ground. So entering this diagnosis area is probably not their best course of action. So let me just basically say the diagnosis area is you turn off all the electrics to half the airplane, see what the, if that has fixed the problem. If it hasn't, you turn that back on, turn it off to the other half of the airplane. If that hasn't fixed the problem, then you, uh, and you're still really, really worried that uh, you're about to catch fire and everything's going to be a dire emergency, you turn off almost everything and you leave yourself with only the absolutely vital components of the airplane still powered that will get you safely on the ground. And that's called, we basically turn off both main generators uh, and go to uh, the emergency electrical configuration. And that's what they did. Captain went to that step Mm. and ended up turning off both generators. Um, Didn't turn on the APU generator. So the only source of power he had was coming from the uh, emergency generator, which is a small hydraulically driven generator um, that uh, will activate and power just the uh, smallest uh, number of items you need to fly the airplane. Mm. And there was really no reason for him to put the airplane in that particular dire electrical state, was there? Uh, in, in hindsight, no, there wasn't. And actually, 
the symptoms that they were experiencing on the aircraft, uh, you go, well, no, they had no real um, reason to take that really quite dire step. So they put the rat out, and what's more, they didn't wait for the rat and the emergency electrical generator power to establish itself. It takes uh, about six seconds before they turn all the generators off. For those, for those six seconds, everything went dark. Everybody lost their flight instruments, uh, and the airplane was effectively running on batteries. Wow. Um, so eventually that generator came back and they recovered a few of their systems. But uh, from this point on, you're in such a dire emergency, the airplane assumes, that it uh, only powers one side of the cockpit, always the captain's side. Uh, so the captain's instruments will come back. Uh, and it will be his main instruments. He's not having to work off his standby instruments, main instruments. And it will assume he's in the cruise. And it will say, okay, you, I've given you sufficient to fly to your destination. But when you want to land, you've got to turn on uh, a special system to land the airplane. It's called the land recovery. What it does is in the cruise, uh, the airplane gives you, certainly a mild airplane, uh, one fuel pump. Uh, to feed all the engines because you're in the cruise, you're just using cruise power. Mm -hmm. For the approach where you might uh, be closer to the ground and the gravity feed system, the fuel is likely to work better. It'll, it'll get rid of that fuel pump and with the power it saved on that, it'll turn on your ILS and allow you to low, lower the gear, I think, on the normal system. Uh, forgive me if I'm not getting these exactly right. It's been a couple of years now and it's actually quite a complicated drill. Mm -hmm. Um, so that land recovery button is vital to press that, and it's in the drill. Had the captain stuck to the drill and run it to the end, he would have found it said it's all divided up into cruise, approach, and landing, mm -hmm. and the appropriate period uh, under the appropriate heading, he would have found the instruction to turn the land recovery switch on. Mm. Well, I guess the good news is they were able to get it down to a runway they descended to so they're obviously in imc uh, instrument me meteorological conditions until they get below the ceiling and i think they said something about 600 feet above the ground uh, they were able to establish ground contact and understand where they were in relation to the airport in relation to runway 19 and they stated that they had the uh, airport and runway in sight and continued for landing um wow I mean, that's, you know, they're that over the, they're over the lake at this point, Lake Pontchartrain at 600 feet. For those of you out there who have flown into New Orleans, I mean, you know, it's close to the airport, but not that close. So they're, they're awfully low out over the lake. And, uh, but luckily they were able to, uh, you know, establish visual contact with uh, the ground and uh, surrounding area and were able to, uh, fly it without instrumentation to to the runway but i guess there were some other things that they hadn't considered as well uh as far as what was going to happen uh with the reversers and steering and braking um once yeah. they hit the runway you see they didn't do what you would normally do at the end of this emergency and that is the aircraft tells you gives you a list an electronic list of all the systems that aren't available and uh, if you're in an emergency electrical configuration, it's a little hard to get to because you've only got one of those two central screens working for you. But 
lo and behold, there's a list of it in the paper checklist. So you don't need to use screens, you can just, and it tells you what you've got and what you haven't got. And there, it's quite a long list because you've turned almost everything in the airplane off. Um, but, you know, a quick glance through and you just pick out the important ones. We're going to land the airplane. Oh, we've only got one reverser. Okay, and that's going to be, I forget which one. I think it was the number two they'd lost. So they got number I think one so, reverser. Yes. Uh, no, oh, you've got no nose or steering. Oh, you've only got emergency brakes, uh, which are the ones that where the anti-skid may not work. Um, and it's got a list of the things that you can uh, rely on and the things you won't have. And you base your approach brief around those, what systems you've got, because it's important. There's no point safely putting the airplane on the ground and then lose control of it and end up in a fireball because you haven't have forgotten that there's a system you need to land safely that is not available to you now. So you might need to make other considerations apart from that there is a warning there that says land asap mm -hmm. uh, they had an amber land asap uh, asap so there are two land conditions that the airbus will produce for you the first is uh, an amber one and land asap in this situation means land as soon as practical so it's not throw it on the ground as quickly as you can it's throw it on the ground as rapidly but as safely as you can. Mm -hmm. uh, the red land ASAP is a different level entirely. Uh, that means land as soon as possible. So you would ignore certain safety considerations just in order to get the airplane on the ground, uh, and you would do it as quickly uh, as you safely can. Uh, so an amber one... Uh, yeah, you, you've, you've got time to think about the situation you're in. You don't want to make anything worse than you are currently. You want to land the airplane safely. Uh, you've got time just to take a few minutes and brief what you're going to do and discuss, uh, you know, the subsequent actions, etc. Yeah. Perhaps quick brief of the cabin crew uh, that we're going to do an emergency landing and you, you know, may not stop on the runway, so want everyone to be aware of the brace signals and all this kind of stuff. Um, so they had an amber one, not really as dire as a red one, but they were treating it like they had a, a dire red land asset one. Mm -hmm. Wow. It almost feels to me like the captain kind of panicked a little bit and thought that they were in a much more dire strait or situation than they were actually in until, of course, he made all the missteps in the checklist procedure and, and not very complete uh, or effective cockpit resource or crew resource management, essentially locking the first officer out of the loop uh, by not clearly communicating with him what, what was happening with the uh, airplane and what he was doing and what steps he was going through. Um, wow. I mean, it's just so illustrative of how important cockpit resource or crew resource management is uh, in these situations. Yeah. And uh, yeah. checklist discipline is another one um, because um, the, the inquiry here um, says that completion of the emergency electrical procedure would have restored, if he followed all the steps, would have restored powers, power to both generators prior to landing. Um, 
prior to landing gear extension uh, and maintained electrical power to the aircraft. Uh, after the incident, the captain said when they lowered the landing gear, operating on battery power was not in his mind. Um, I don't think he really had a solid understanding of the implications of the drill and the situation he was going to get himself into when he plucked certain elements of the drill, actioned some major ones that perhaps weren't appropriate, and then didn't complete the drill to get to the point where he could now reinstate that. Um, mm -hmm. So, I don't know. Uh, um, what more can you say? I don't want to be overly rude, but um, it seems that... Um, you know, their, their discipline on the flight deck, the handling of uh, the emergency, the briefing, the nice, calm, uh, controlled situation you expect wasn't present uh, during this flight. Yeah, they make a point in the report saying it is the captain's responsibility as a leader to set the tone of the, in the cockpit for the entire flight. And this is even more critical when a crew is faced with an abnormal situation. Uh, cockpit voice recorder data suggests the tone in the cockpit was very casual. For example, prior to performing the before takeoff checklist, the first officer asks the captain, ready to read him and weep? And just before takeoff, the first officer said, let's get out of here, man. Of course, I, I think back. Of, I've, I've heard that kind of thing <laughs> said in the cockpit, but it uh, just seems like it was pretty casual. Uh, the captain then stated, brakes released. You got it, man. Throttle's yours. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> Uh, the casual tone in the cockpit during pre-flight activities in the taxi did not support the creation of a functional team environment conducive to the crew's subsequent attempts to resolve the abnormal situation. Uh, they failed to adequately assess and understand the situation they were presented with. Um, yeah, so it goes into a little bit more detail. And basically saying what uh, Captain Nick was saying about you know the, the sequence of events here and uh, the missteps taken um, trying to complete a uh, an emergency or abnormal uh, procedure and it just it, it it was you see this sometimes uh, and I've I've been one to in 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 a simulator situation in a simulated a abnormal situation to like want to rush through because you feel like you just got to do everything really really quickly because it's a dire situation we need to get on the ground and then you uh, when you replay the whole thing, you think, wait a minute, there was really no meet, need for me to, to be in that kind of a hurry. Uh, we, you know, there, we put things in buckets now, they call it time buckets. And, you know, if, if the airplane's on fire, then you have little time. That's the no time bucket. But if the airplane is still flying and you have resources to keep the airplane flying for a while, there's no reason to get yourself into a situation uh, you, you're in the time bucket you can make time or you have time to analyze a situation and get the airplane safely on the ground and it seems that in the situation that he basically put out everything into the no time bucket and we need to do this right now and uh it, there was really no need for them to do that and they basically created uh the the emergency essentially and uh, it yeah. just there, there, there was no emergency. No, uh, as we've subsequently discovered, that warning was lingering on. Mm -hmm. Had they done their pre-flight preparation properly, they would have noticed it, noticed it, and cleared it, and their flight would have been conducted probably fine. Mm -hmm. uh, having got this odd the warning pitching up, they then went headlong into a checklist that's quite complicated 
action part of it never finished it and put themselves in a dire situation where they were lucky to get away with it. And if you had correctly um, interpreted the checklist um, conditional statement that said something about persistent smoke, if there, if the smoke persists or there's persistent smoke or whatever, uh, then you go here to the, you know, in this part of the checklist, but there were there was no persistent smoke. There was no smoke at all. The only indication of smoke was that light that came on, which apparently had been on before they even got to the cockpit. And uh, yeah, just a uh, a great example of how you can just get yourself wrapped around an axle uh, and then cause more harm than good. Uh, yeah, quite. Uh, and uh, Liz says that she heard that. This captain now is the head of ACME training department. Um, <laughs> thank you, Liz. <laughs> and you're, he's going to be checking you on your yes. ACME check ride. <laughs> <laughs> that is not true. This person is not affiliated in any way with ACME. So, yeah. I believe he's gone to Speed Tape Airlines. Speed Tape. Yeah, I bet you're right. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Captain Roger Victor is going to have to deal with it. <laughs> All right. Well, that was an uh, that was an eye opener right there. Um, you know, when I first yeah. heard about this situation, I was thinking, "Oh my gosh!" I mean, that was almost. Well, I guess it, you could still say that it was almost uh, another hole in the ground with many, many uh, innocent lives lost. Um, fortunately, that didn't happen that way. But uh, when it was initially reported and presented, it was like, "Wow!" I mean, they did a great job of getting that airplane on the ground safely. Uh, now, reading the final report, I see that maybe not. Maybe not. Um, it, I, I have absolutely no doubt that other airlines will be using this as a training example in their um, CRM lessons. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, there are some classics out there, and this is going to be amongst them, I'm afraid. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm so happy to have you as uh, as our Airbus expert, or at least have extensive <laughs> experience. And not okay. I don't mean that in a. You're, you're thinking, well, he's no. Kind that's of, kind of you. No, uh, I, I'm just not up to date, and I'm not a three twenty. So, right. any technical experts out there? If I slightly misspoken, I do apologize. Uh, I'm sure that if 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 you did, we'll we'll be notified because everybody always wants <laughs> yes. to keep us above fifty percent, right? <laughs> yeah, we we exactly right. So, you know, I've uh, talked about the fact that um, I am uh, flying a version of the DC-9, and uh, there is a f another final report uh, uh, for another event that happened quite some time ago, again in 2011. Um, and I, I mentioned that uh, on occasion, you know, you have firm landings in whatever airplane you're flying, uh, but I can happily say that I've never had a landing like this one that we're about to talk about. Um, it was a Aero Postal DC 950 uh, registration uh, Yankee Victor 136 Tango performing flight 342 from Caracas to Puerto Ordaz in Venezuela with 125 passengers and seven crew made a hard touchdown <laughs> at Puerto Ordaz's <laughs> runway 07. That's a polite way of putting it. Well, now, come on, Nick. It was only... I've done some hard landings, but I don't remember any of my engines falling <laughs> well, off. 
You know, you remember we talked about, we showed that little video or I played that little video clip of the uh, airplane coming in and they were doing some hard landing or high sink rate tests on the, um, on the uh, MD. No, I think it was a DC nine and the act, the tail actually fell off. Um, uh, yes, I do. Well, in this one, I can safely say, or happily say the tail did not fall off, but both engines did. <laughs> Well, they actually didn't fall off. They were just hanging down, almost scraping the ground. The pylons completely collapsed because the uh, touchdown was about plus a positive 4.2 Gs. Now, that's a lot of G-force. <laughs> yeah. Uh, causing yeah. both JT-8D engine pylons and support structures at the airframe to crack and distort, nearly separating the engines from the airplane. Uh, the airplane slowed safely, stopped on the runway, and was shut down. No injuries occurred, which I find really quite amazing, really. Uh, the aircraft received substantial damage. I'd have had an injury. I'd have broken my back, I tell you. Well, yeah. And, you know, uh, I, I think I've mentioned this before. Um, World Airways was flying a DC-10 uh, that landed at Baltimore, Washington International quite some time ago. And the landing was so hard, I think the first officer broke, like, something in his back um, and the first officer I'm flying with today flew for world and he was with them at the time. And he said that the landing was so hard that the jump seat, which is bolted to the airframe, you know, the, the, uh, what do they call that? The uh, bulkhead structure uh, actually was ripped off. I mean, it sheared <laughs> the bolts in the jump seat assembly for the flight attendants. Wow. Uh, yeah, quite a, quite a firm touchdown. Um, and I'm surprised that, you know, that this didn't cause, you know, more damage than it did actually. Um, anyway, uh, so the final report was released in Spanish, uh, sometime ago. Uh, let's see violations. Okay. The investigation based on the characteristics of the occurrence, as well as the evidence collected, assume human factors as the main cause of the accident violations of provisions. Of chapter. Generalized. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, human factors. Yes. That entire enormous subject. Mm -hmm. Lack of situational mm -hmm. awareness of the train, oh, a training captain, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the first officer and the, I'm not saying anything about training captains. They're all, uh, not all, they're mostly all good. That's what I'll, I'll say. Uh, the first officer and the observing pilot. Other activities performed by the captain adding to his duties as training captain. Not sure exactly what that means, but there might be some issues with the, with the uh, translation there. Uh, so it was a flight training captain, 55 years old, 14,000 hours total. Quite a bit of time and experience. Yeah. First officer under training to be checked out as a first officer. He was 42 uh, commercial pilot license, 275 hours total. So pretty low time airline pilot. And well, he's being taught to fly this airplane. So basically. Yeah. Yeah. Not don't do it like this. That was the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. So if you want to see the picture of said airplane with the sagging, sad looking engines hanging off the back of the airplane, check it out. It'll be in the show notes, but my goodness. That's quite something. Yeah, Caught my they, they basically got the airplane too slow. Mm. They didn't notice the speed decay. And uh, when it came time to arrest the descent, they had no authority. The aircraft couldn't just, <laughs> just fly kept going. well enough to <laughs> stop <laughs> them going down. <laughs> and exactly. then basically hit the tail, right? Tail first? 
Yeah, although there's an indication they may have been the second time on that trip that hit the tail mm. because they think they probably over-rotated on takeoff and may well have struck the tail then as well. So, wow. Huh. Yeah, not good. Not good. I mean, you all. can't blame the first officer. He's He lacks the experience to be able to deal with this. It's all, unfortunately, all down to the training captain. There's something about psychological studies. I'm reading this last paragraph here. Um, in his interview, the captain stated that he was carrying out his monitoring duties of the first officer and was monitoring the approach speed. However, the cockpit voice recorder, as well as psychological studies of the captain, suggest that he was occupied with difficulties in his work environment and mul multiple charges by the company against his person. Additional assessments are needed to oh. identify which factors influenced the first officer's decisions with respect to spatial orientation, lack of experience, age, or psychological problems <laughs> that jeopardize the safety of the flight by not taking action as quickly as necessary. Um, in their interviews, the crew expressed there had been no gusts, down or updrafts, corroborated by the weather report, which stated the winds were calm. Yeah. Not a lot yeah. of excuses to well, If, if you're carrying concerns that the company is uh, out to get you and you may be losing your job, yep. then, yeah, you don't want to take them into the air. Nope. Not a good thing. All right. Let's see here. Um, oh, well, you may have heard in the news recently that the uh, 737 MAX is flying again. And uh, the uh, FAA, the uh, United States Federal Aviation Administration, basically gave the, uh, their blessing and green light for airlines to operate the uh, model. And uh, let's see. We also mentioned, I think, last episode that uh, some of the regulatory agencies for other countries were kind of taking a look at uh, you know, the reasoning behind the uh, reauthorization uh, and recertification airworthiness of the uh, aircraft, and that uh, we have this item from, uh, let's see, ASN News, uh, Transport Canada validates the design changes to the Boeing 737 MAX. However, um, they are going to require, they have some stipulations. Prior to the return of service of the aircraft in Canadian airspace, Transport Canada will require Modifications to the aircraft as specified in the Canadian Airworthiness Directive. Incorporation of the revised pilot training syllabus into the Transport Canada approved training program for each Canadian airline and airlines to conduct maintenance on the aircraft to ensure it will operate safely given the aircraft has been in storage for some time. Good point. Specifically, the Canadian design changes for the Boeing 737 MAX will include an enhanced flight deck procedure that provides the option for a pilot in command to disable a loud and intrusive warning system, commonly called the stick shaker, when the system has been erroneously activated by a failure in the angle of attack sensor system. So apparently when they were doing some of these recertification uh, tests uh, with, I, I guess when you get one of these bad angle of attack indications and the, the stick shaker comes on, there's a lot of stuff happening, a lot of warning systems going off. You have the stick shaker going off, which makes quite a racket. Um, and I think they must have found that this is quite um, a confusing and distracting kind of environment to really try to analyze what is actually happen happening with the airplane. And so I guess they want to have the ability for the captain to 
flip a switch or something to turn off at least some of the distracting noises, such as the stick stick shaker system. Uh, Say that quickly five times. Um, So uh, I'm not going to even attempt that. But uh, interesting, I thought, that that part of the uh, stipulation by Transport Canada to be able to deactivate a warning system. And, you know, that's one of those things where you have to be very careful because if you give the crew the capability of turning off certain systems, you know, there's a chance that people may do that, you know, uh, without its, when it's not necessary to turn off a warning system. You know what I'm trying to say? It's like, yeah, inappropriately. Thank you, Liz. Yeah, it's happened in the past uh, where stick pusher systems, uh, when they were first introduced, uh, some pilots were so nervous of having it uh, possibly go off uh, and, you know, force the aircraft into the ground that uh, they regularly turned off the stick pushers on Mm T-tailed airplanes. Um, So, you know, uh, it required a lot of education to... Uh, convince people that these systems were safe but yeah. of course we know that this uh, Boeing system is based on only two angle of attack sensors and if either one of them I actually I'm not absolutely sure now uh, I'm pretty sure that I would suspect that the stick shaker was still activate on a single system but perhaps the uh, the um, MCAS will only activate when both angle of attack sensors uh, indicate uh, I'm, I'm, we'll probably need some education. Right. I'm not sure about that either. Um, I'm sure that they've made some enhancements and, lo- you know, logic, uh, changes as far as, you know, what happens, uh, when one, only one angle of attack, uh, sensor yeah. erroneously activates. Um, yeah. Um, not sure. But uh, the other thing that comes to mind is, uh, I think, uh, trying to remember what airline it was. But there was an airline out there that, well, on the um, MD-80 series airplane, if you push the power up, the throttles up, the thrust levers, uh, beyond a certain point um, on the ground, you get the takeoff warning system going off. And let's say somebody tells you to, you know, cross the runway, you know, expeditiously. Um, and it, it's kind of irritating to hear the thing start squawking at you on the ground that, you know, the flaps aren't set correctly. Well, we understand that we just landed. We don't need the flaps out. You know, we've already retracted the flaps. You know that kind of thing. And I heard that this particular airline was making a habit of pulling that um, circuit breaker for that warning system. And uh, the crew that took off without the slats and flaps extended for takeoff when they were supposed to be uh, weren't aware of that because the warning system circuit breaker had been pulled. So. I, I, maybe it's not um, exactly they the same. To reset kind of, it. Yeah, they did not reset yeah. it, and uh, there's a reason for these warning systems. So, I don't know. That's one. That's just kind of the part of this stipulation by Transport Canada that kind of makes me wonder whether or not that's a good idea. But I guess they've they've uh, analyzed the situation and thought that uh, this is going to be more help than hazard. So, anywho, we'll see how that goes. Um, item D. Now, here's another one that, um, and, and again, they're, they're still, they haven't issued their final report on the, um, the B-17, the Collings Foundation uh, 2019 uh, B-17 crash at Bradley uh, International. 
in uh, uh, Windsor Locks, uh, north of Hartford, Connecticut. Um, but they have released the um, their latest findings, uh, what they call their docket, which has a lot of factual information, interviews, uh, cockpit voice recorder, uh, flight data recorder, that kind of stuff. And um, there are some very troubling things that have been released uh, as regards this particular accident. Um, let's see. You'll remember that they were doing one of these um, historic, uh, what do they call it? There's a specific um, term for what they were doing, like a historic um, something, appreciation flight or whatever. I'm trying to find the actual phrase right now. But anyway, uh, they, they were given uh, a living history flight experience. There we go. LHFE. It's an exemption to the regulations uh, from the FAA to allow um, foundations such as the Collings Foundation to fly paying passengers without meeting all the requirements that govern revenue, revenue generating flights. Um, so uh, the they were doing that at Bradley International in uh, October of 2019, and uh, they crashed. Seven people were killed. Six survived, all but one with serious injuries. Um, the docket for this major investigation, uh, which everybody's still in the process of reviewing, includes thousands of pages and hundreds of photographs, videos, charts, graphs, among other materials. Uh, sections of the docket that cover what the NTSB refers to as survivability factors and the report from the power plant group contains some alarming details. The flight was being conducted under that exemption that we just talked about, the Living History Flight Experience, the LHFE. Um, so the B-17 taxied to runway 6 at KBDL for the sightseeing flight with 10 passengers and 3 crew members. After completing a run-up, it departed normally. Shortly thereafter, however, a crew member reported a problem with the number four engine, the one farthest from the pilot on the right, and turned back to the field. Much speculation about the crash focused on the plane's engines. By the way, this is uh, from the Plane and Pilot uh, magazine and their website. Um, let's see. Uh, Curtis Wright R1820 nine-cylinder radial engines. And the NTSB has focused a great attention, a great deal of attention toward them. Uh, the power plant team's report alone is 132 pages long. Investigators found that the number three engines, pistons, and spark plugs showed evidence of detonation that would have resulted in a significant loss of engine power. Engine numbers three and four are both on the right wing, the right starboard side of the plane. Investigators also found problems with the number four engine, the one the pilot reported a problem with and which necessitated the return to the field. The, the examination of the number four engine uh, showed that P lead to the left and right magnetos was separated from the magnetos housings. goes on to say that the leads to each of the magnetos were, were secured with a single strand of safety wire that was loose that led to the left magneto completely uh, was completely out of the housing, allowing the grounding tab to contact the housing, shorting it out. Um, basically, it sounds to me like they were left with a situation where they purposely shut down and feathered the number four engine. However, it looks like the number three engine was even suffering more issues, and uh, it um, ended up not providing much power, and the propeller on that one was not um, 
feathered. It was in the normal operating position, which would have caused um, quite a bit of, of drag as well. Uh, after the pilot reported the problem to the tower, the B-17 entered a downwind to runway 6, the same runway from which it had departed, but landed short of the runway, veered off to the right before crossing the infield and parallel taxiways before entering a non-movement zone and hitting a de-icing facility a couple of hundred yards away from the initial ground contact. Um, by the way, when they were on this kind of modified right downwind back to runway 6, um, Mac McCauley uh, directed the first officer to lower the landing gear so that threw even more drag on the airplane. So you have a pretty dire situation where most, if not all, the power on the left, I mean, the right side of the uh, airplane is gone. So you're operating essentially a two-engine, um, you know, half your power is gone. And then you threw the uh, landing gear down, which even causes more drag. Um Anyway, a lot of uh, troubling um, indications of, again, lack of crew resource management um, and uh, kind of the, uh, the attitude of the aircraft commander and uh, basically the kind of guy that did everything on his own, didn't communicate a lot of what he was doing with the airplane and, you know, letting... Yeah, he was it. wearing several hats, wasn't he, Jeff? Yes. I mean, he was... In charge of the maintenance, he was like the operations director. He was the captain. He was the check pilot. He was like a bit of a one-man band, and there was there was no one there to um, level the plane. What am I? Checks and balances to uh, to make sure that everything that was supposed to be done was was done. I mean, just having one guy do all that isn't the way we like to work in aviation. We like to work with one guy doing the job, one guy checking that the job has been done. And that didn't appear to be happening a great deal. No. Not only that, the FAA um, has been quite um, harshly criticized in this matter because uh, down in Orlando, where the certification for the living history, uh, living flight history, whatever. Again, I've already forgotten. Living history flight experience exemption to the regulations were issued. Um, basically, there wasn't going a lot of uh, uh, there wasn't a lot going on with uh, oversight of all of this. Uh, and in fact, uh, when the local uh, FS, uh, FD, FSDO flight safety FISDO, FISDO thank you, um, was contacted about this, they kind of indicated they didn't even realize that they were that was kind of under their uh, their bailiwick that they had anything to do with this so I guess there was somebody that established all this this program and then they either retired or died or something they left and nobody who the person persons that took over apparently didn't know anything about it and <laughs> I guess there was another Part of the docket here they talked about that uh somebody had been sending some reports in and uh they because they lost their contact with the uh, fisdo down there they just started I, I guess they were told to just send it to the general mailbox and apparently nobody was getting any of these reports or anything else and then finally because they weren't receiving anything in return and then they finally got to the point where they just stopped sending information about their safety program and all the other things that were required by the FAA to operate this kind of, you know, this, this operation. So a uh, lot of 
a lot of really kind of not good things happening here with this with this program. Yeah. I was a bit concerned about the uh, lap straps. I mean, it's a fairly basic thing, but in an incident like this, it's the thing that's quite likely to save your life. Uh, a lot of them failed. Um, some of them were um, in bad condition. Uh, so that they couldn't be done up properly. Um, people weren't briefed as to how to use them. Uh, they couldn't be cinched up tight uh, because the crew said, well, if you cinch, cinch them up tight, we can't uncinch them. They're very hard to move. So it didn't sound like, you know, just basic safety precautions like that were being observed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to, in, in the show notes, include uh, several excellent um, YouTube videos regarding um, a, a more granular breakdown of some of these uh, items in the docket, uh, two of which uh, from Juan Brown's Blancolirio channel, which I've mentioned many times on the show. Uh, Juan does a, a, an excellent job of really getting into a lot of the details of, uh, of the uh, engine uh, investigation, uh, that part of the report. Um, also, Another one from uh, another channel, and right off the bat, I can't, uh, or right off hand, I can't remember exactly the person that put this one out, but it's um, not the Blancolirio channel, but another one, a Flywire, I think it's called. Um, and this gentleman um, goes into some detail and, and, and kind of espouses his uh, opinion about, or expresses his opinion about what he believed was just you know, not a good situation as far as the way the uh, cockpit or crew resource uh, was managed uh, in this situation. So good stuff. So a link to all the reports in the docket as well as these uh, videos that, uh, you know, kind of go into a little bit more detail, more than we have time to do on our show. But uh, not good. That's all I can say. Lots of news here to, uh, this week, um, but not a lot of feedback. I don't know. What do you think, Nick? Should we? Is there one of these here um, that we have left in the um, in the notebook uh, that you think that we should cover, or do you think we should? I just thought the two uh, people jumping out the airplane oh, was interesting. Yeah. That would be a good uh, one. Yeah. yeah, a little bit lighter uh, uh, than the couple of uh, serious accidents we were just talking about. Um, yeah, so uh, two passengers exit plane by emergency slide before takeoff from New York City's LaGuardia Airport. And I have some live ATC audio from that. So let me uh, find that and play it for you. Quite interesting. Here we go. Ground Delta 462. 462? Hey, do you have a, a frequency where we can talk to the emergency services? Do uh, you have an emergency? You need help with something? Um, we're at 12 Alpha, and we uh, had a passenger exit the airplane using the, uh, the slide, so we're surrounded by all emergency equipment. I just didn't know if you had a frequency where we could talk to them. Yeah, 121.85. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can get them to come over to you. Okay, thanks. Uh, truck one, you still on ground frequency? Do you copy? Truck one copies last. I'm going to one two one point eight five. Thank you. Nice ground. Subject aircraft uh, from the emergency crew. Go ahead. Hey, truck one, this is Captain Doge, aircraft three zero five seven. 
can you tell me uh, what the uh, what you think the plan is uh, now? I, I couldn't see what the passenger did when he left. So uh, what what exactly is going on? Uh, it looks like the individual is being a, arrested at this time. Um, and then uh, whatever needs to be done with the aircraft with the slide out is going to be up to you, you and your uh, your company. Okay, understand. And uh, if we get an air stair to come up to the airplane, uh, can we? Uh, I see one over here to the left. Can we use the uh, air stair there truck to get the people off and down onto the ramp and buses? Is that all right with you guys? Um, you're gonna have to call your company for stairs before we use ours. Okay. Oh, okay. Those belong to you. I didn't realize that. Okay. All right, we'll uh, we'll call the company. Thanks for coming out. We appreciate it. No problem. That's what we're here for. Yeah. Okay. And that's what they're there for. Except you can't use our steps. Yeah, no, they're our steps. You can't use those. It's you have to use the company steps. Well, so, he, he just makes the assumption. He sees the air stairs over there. Well, they must be our air stairs. Oh no, I'm sorry. I didn't know they were yours. <laughs> they are air stairs. I mean, they could yeah. wear them out. I guess. But uh, you know, if they were just off the gate there, then. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, probably some air stairs in the area there. It's been a while since I've been flown into LaGuardia, but I, I seem to recall that we do have a little equipment there. Or at least I know that well, our sister. That it was two people and yes. a service dog. Yeah. <laughs> jumped off the airplane. Yeah. So let's see. What is the, um, let's see, two passengers forced open the cabin door on their flight, fled down an emergency slide. Uh, they were not identified. It was an Airbus three A three twenty one, and perhaps that's why they ran. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Um, I thought they were on a Boeing. <laughs> mm, probably not. Nick's filling in for Rick. It wasn't immediate, immediately clear what caused the hasty exit. Uh, the uh, looks like the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey Police Department. Uh, they didn't immediately respond to a request. Uh, as Nick mentioned, um, another passenger on the flight identified the pair as a couple with a service dog, which had switched seats several times before takeoff. Apparently, they just could not find a comfortable seat. (laughs) (laughs) So they said, the heck with this. Let's get off the airplane. Yeah, and I haven't heard anything else about this. I don't know if there's any kind of follow-up about what exactly happened and Maybe Roger could do some in-depth. Yeah, that's true. We we do know somebody in the in the news um, game, the news business up there in uh, New York City. Uh, Roger Stern, maybe Radio Roger can correspondent. Find our correspondent, yes, up in New York City. Yes. Maybe Roger, <laughs> if you're listening, Roger, uh, let us know if there's any other, you know, follow up to this uh, story and why these people thought it would be a good idea to leave the airplane on the ground via the emergency exits. Not the most common so this thing. was a, a Delta flight as well. Perhaps that's yes. the other reason they ran. Yeah, they, they, they realized they were on a Delta flight and thought, yeah, let's get off this yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> this is no I good. I thought this was American. <laughs> no, it's a Delta flight. Yeah. We're running. Just very, very similar to, uh, it's our sister airline, uh, Acme Airlines. Laura makes a good point. Of course, uh, if you've got a service dog, it might be possible that uh, uh, one of them had PTSD and the uh, the dog was there to help them through their troubles. Uh, so a lot of service dogs are being trained in that area now, and they can be a great help, but if someone's having a panic attack, they might well act irrationally. But, uh, of course, re- in reality, the most important thing to do is to... Um, alert the cabin crew 
Uh, and uh, I'm sure they could have explained perhaps the problem, and there were two of them. One of them might have uh, been able to explain the problem and get them back on the gate and disembark them properly. So let me uh, see if I understand what you're trying to say. You're thinking that the service dog actually is the one that opened up the uh, emergency exit. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Very could well-trained be. service dog. Could, it could be. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I need to get okay. my uh, my man off this airplane. He's having a panic attack. I'll open this door. <laughs> Roger, please help us out. Let us know what what <laughs> happened up there. If we if anybody Absolutely. knows, right? It might be. Let's just sweep this thing under the carpet and act like it never happened. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, right. Rich from Sheffield makes a, is a, has a good question. Uh, at what point does it become impossible to open a door? And I think it really depends on the airplane, on the DC-9s and variants that I fly. Um, there is a slight amount of positive pressure uh, put on the airplane when we push up the throttles for takeoff. And so from that point, when you start the takeoff roll until you're on the ground and the um, pressurization outflow valve opens up, you are, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to be able to open that door. So, um, and there are some provisions for if you have a, a, an emergency aborted takeoff, uh, after a certain point, the outflow valve will reopen up because they have thought through that, uh, you know, situation where, uh, they, you stop the takeoff and now people can't open the doors to get out of the airplane. So there, there is a provision for that, but I think most like the Airbus um, fleet and a lot of Boeing's, I think are the same way where the pressurization doesn't occur until the uh, airplane senses that it's in air mode, uh, basically the weight off the wheels. And that's when the pressurization starts, or maybe even yeah. some, a couple hundred feet, maybe even I've heard uh, above the ground before it actually starts positive. Yeah, pressurization. we didn't. We didn't used to. We had varying procedures during my time uh, on the Airbus, and at one point we weren't uh, pressurizing the airplane till after we'd gone through um, the acceleration phase. So we'd come back into climb power from okay. takeoff power, which was at about thousand fifteen hundred feet right. in that area. Okay. So we weren't pressurized in, until that point. So it wasn't a lot to prevent people from opening the door. It wouldn't have been easy, but yeah. it was would have been possible. But it would have been possible, um, yeah. Yeah. But, of course, uh, most big airplanes, so you've got cabin crew at every door. Uh, perhaps mm -hmm. not the overwing exits. That might be the one vulnerable area. Right. David Hooper in the chat room, uh, we're going to hear from him uh, in the feedback section today. Um, says 80 knots on the 777. So in that case, it's a it's a speed that triggers the uh, pressurization of the airplane. So as I said, it depends on the airplane. Um, I think most, um, yeah, probably somewhere during the takeoff roll, um, you can probably still open up a door if you <laughs> if you could get past everybody to get to it. Um, yes. But, uh, anyway, good good stuff. Well. I think now it's time for us to stop with the news and start with the getting to know us part of the uh, show. It's where we talk about what has been happening with us between shows. Now, I think there was a, a big holiday, and I'm not talking about my birthday, Um a much more important person's birthday that has occurred uh, since we did the last episode. Christmas. So uh, tell us, Nick, how was your Christmas? 
Well, it, it was uh, within the constraints of uh, uh, tier four uh, restrictions we have in the UK. Uh, oh yeah, we were we were pretty good uh, right up until almost to Christmas, and then uh, this new ver- variety of uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, appeared in the southeast, uh, hit London, and uh, they assumed it was going to progress into our area, although it hadn't done yet. So they put us into that lockdown. So what what would have been a five day period we could have uh, share with our families uh, turned into one day. Mm. Um, we had our eldest son with us anyway because he's allowed to bubble with us, so that's fine. He was uh, permitted to come and stay. Uh, but the uh, my youngest son and his girlfriend uh, just came for Christmas Day. But we made the best of it, and uh, all was going tickety-boo until uh, about half an hour before we were due to serve uh, the food for our early afternoon meal. <laughs> all the power went out. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> a complete power failure. And there's me wandering around the streets in my slippers, shouting at my neighbour, saying, you got any power? I've got some Brussels sprouts I need to boil. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the only thing we kind of missed out on, really, were the Brussels sprouts. Luckily, the turkey was more or less done. Uh, So uh, we didn't lose out too badly. But uh, if it had been, you know, uh, if you'd been halfway through your meal, it might well have Mm. been ruined uh, if you had an electric hob or whatever, but uh, that was fine. We That's we got good. through that. Well, was it dark when this happened? Had a great time. I'm oh, sorry. Was it dark when all of this occurred, or was it? That still was about uh, three o'clock in okay. the afternoon. So we That's had a good. couple of hours of light left, uh-huh. and just as it was starting to get dark, and we were thinking about lighting candles, the power came back on, oh, okay. and uh, everything was fine. It was only out for a couple of hours. So I understand but, that uh, everybody was upset about the Brussels sprouts except you. Or do I have that <laughs> a little bit wrong? I'm the only one <laughs> that likes Brussels sprouts. And it's the one meal in the year where I get to have some. So uh, I was just a wee bit disappointed. Because they do make me uh, a bit gassy. So the oh, rest yeah. of the family were the least bit disappointed. <laughs> they thought that was really good news. They had the same effect on me, too. <laughs> what do they call that cruciferous uh, uh, vegetable lots or? of butter and uh, a little yeah. bit of, uh, of crushed walnuts and things so very yeah. nice um but uh, no we we had a you know fairly traditional uh lovely breakfast of uh a toasted uh, brioche bread and uh smoked salmon and mm. um scrambled eggs and then we uh, opened presents uh pause halfway for a dog walk and to get the turkey in and then finish opening presents and then have a uh, big lunch and then all sit around like bloated fish until, uh, you know, someone <laughs> says, can we have some, you know, uh, cold cuts? Uh, mm. but, uh, no, it was, a, it was a, a great day. I was very lucky. I got my super present from my wife. And uh, I believe there's a little bit of video that might oh, yeah. be uh, going with that. Hi, Jeff. I'm in my studio. And... Here on the back is my ego wall, which you'll remember, and I've managed to add to it a wonderful Christmas present that was finally given to me by my lovely wife. Uh, It's a collection of my flying suit badges that uh, I was kind of promised about 25 years ago, and it has frequently come up as, oh, that'll be your Christmas present or birthday present uh, this year, but finally it's happened. So uh, it's super. Uh, it's the patches I wore from my three fighter tours 
Uh, on the left is uh, uh, a list of the bases I was served at. On the right, the uh, aircraft and hours that I flew. And then uh, my badges, or at least some of, from 43 Squadron, the Fighting Cox, uh, the Royal Australian Air Force, F-18 Hornet on 77 Squadron, and uh, the uh, dastardly F-3 Tornado from Treble One Squadron. Dastardly. What a wonderful Christmas gift, and I'm very grateful. Wow. That is so that was nice. Great, wasn't it? Absolutely. It looks really, really nice on my wall. And uh, it's a lovely uh, uh, gift. So uh, thank you very much indeed. And of course, my uh, other one was a new camera. Now, you all know I'm very Ooh. interested in photography. Wow. There is my new camera. Oh, what um, kind of lens is that I on would... there? Sorry? What kind of lens is that on there? Yeah, it's, it's a very, very thin lens. <laughs> very short. <laughs> very thin. <laughs> Uh, you see, this is the sort of lens that I use with oh. it. And my, you have a big lens there. They go together. <laughs> yes, I know. They should go together. But uh, unfortunately, this lens and this camera aren't uh, compatible without an adapter. Hmm. And that's the one bit I'm missing. And there are none to be had in the United Kingdom right now. Mm. So I got my camera, but I can't use it, which is a bit of a shame. Well, you're getting you're one step closer, right? I am. I mean, wasn't this a, a birthday process. gift? It was a birthday gift. Uh, so they've been out since June. Well, in theory, they've been out since June, but I didn't get mine, and it was on pre-order. I didn't get it until uh, halfway through December, and wow. I won't be able to play with it till halfway through January. So, is it yeah. is the shortage or availability of this particular body um, throughout the whole world? I mean, is it is it restricted worldwide? It has been very slow. Uh, okay. Canon have had a lot of problems with COVID, and their output from the factory has been uh, much re me, reduced. I think you've had them in the states for a while now, but it's taken mm -hmm. a while to get them through to the UK. That's very sad. Hmm. Well, hopefully you'll get that oh, adapter well. soon and then uh, start yeah, being I'll, able to I'll use it. I'll be out there at uh, 30 frames a second or something completely ludicrous. Wow. Can't wait. At, at uh, four, 40 megapixels. So Wow. Uh, so I think that's right. That's incredible resolution. About twice the file size of my previous camera. So I've had special high-power batteries. I've had to order very expensive special uh, data cards to use it. <laughs> wow. So I thought, you know, it's, the camera is not cheap. Um, and, and then, of course, you add all the extra add-ons, special add-ons you've got to buy for it. And I'm going, well, quite a lot of money. But there you go. I shall look forward to playing with it. Right yeah, now. here's another sucker that's going to buy one of these things. Exactly. Yeah. I could have so bought a car, a very nice car. <laughs> <laughs> very nice car, actually. Yeah, right, too. So that was uh, that was me, and uh, of course, looking forward very much to uh, New Year. Not going to have any special um, lifting of restrictions over New Year, so that's going to be quite quiet, um, I suspect. Uh, so fingers crossed. Of course, the situation not brilliant here in the UK at the moment mm. with um, rising uh, infection rates, 
and uh, limited, uh, quite limited uh, bed space now in hospitals because of the number of uh, people that are catching this illness and being sent to hospitals. So uh, we've all got our fingers crossed that uh, things will work out well in the new year. And as uh, the vaccine becomes more and more available, hopefully more and more people will be protected. But we've all got our fingers crossed. Yes, fingers crossed. Man, I hope that 2021 is a, a better year. And maybe, you know, by this time next year, it'll all be just a distant memory. Here's hoping. Absolutely. Absolutely. So did you get anything special? Or? Well, before I talk about Christmas and that, um, I'd like to mention the fact that you and I were involved in a, a little quiz show thing. Oh, yes. Yeah, right. Uh, the uh, it's called the Air Cadets over there, right? In uh, that's in right, and in the, the Civil, Civil Air, Air Patrol, Patrol over your side. Yeah, well, tell tell us. Uh, I think we t- we talked about the fact that we were going to do it. We indeed did do our um, hosting duties uh, with the uh, with quiz, and it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, uh, a lovely chap called Andy, who's one of our listeners, and uh, he's an officer in one of our Air Cadet squadrons uh, up north, and. Uh, uh, treble one four, I think, mm-hmm. uh, is the number of the squadron, and uh, they linked up with a, a unit in Kentucky, I think. My memory yes. is not yeah, brilliant. Louisville, I, Kentucky. I, all the details I've yep. now lost. And um, he he set up a quiz, and Jeff and I were asked to act as uh, quiz masters, asking the questions, multiple choice or multiple guesses. I always think it, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I think um, that a, a, f- a particular family uh, of cadets—they've uh, got like three <laughs> cadets in one family. I think they would—they were the top three places, so they obviously yes. know their stuff. <laughs> yes, they—they they just basically just flattened everybody else. I mean, it was like <laughs> yeah, a runaway uh, quiz with them. Yeah, no, it was good. It yeah. was great fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. So thanks, Adam, for inviting us to uh, partake or participate Andy, in that. I think. I'm uh, Andy. I'm sorry. What did I say, Adam? Adam. No. Okay, Andy. So uh, I, I've got one extra thing to. Uh, now we're on about you. I've yeah. got a special thing to read here. Oh, what? Okay. Did you know that? No. Uh, well, I've got a special thing to read. So um, this comes uh, from Ivor. Uh, and uh, uh, it is, uh, I think, primarily addressed to you. But uh, uh, he actually um, cautions uh, the rest of the crew to remember uh, that today is a special day. So it's, uh, dear Nick, Steph, and Rick, in some people's mind, uh, today is a special day, and they might be right. It's the day after Christmas, also known as St. Stephen's Day. For many, it's just another day, back to work, and the normal routine kicks in. But for some, it's viewed as a very special day. Why, you may ask. Well, in the UK, it's the start of all the big sales in the shops. For others, it feels like a new beginning, a time to start afresh. And for a few, a very select few, it does indeed feel special. These are the poor people, born way too close to Christmas, too close for it to have its own birthday definition, a sad but true reflection of their poor empty lives. Some people, and I mean 
so-called friends and relatives, are just exhausted from too much goodwill to all men and, by this stage, they frankly couldn't give a toss. <laughs> so if you know a little boy or a little girl who has a birthday today, try to be nice to them. Yeah. They can't help being born on this day, the day we've all had enough of by now. <laughs> so be nice to them, even if it's only a patronizing pat on the head. It's better than nothing. Believe me, these are sad, desperate people. Any human contact is welcome. <laughs> Keep so an eye true. out for them. You might be closer to one than you think. Love and kisses from Ivor. Oh, thank you, Ivor. And yes, look how close you are to me, Nick. Whoops. Yeah, I this no, I can't quite. I can't get <laughs> ah. the hand hand across there to pat you on the head. Oh, there we go. Oh, there we thank go. Thank you. A very patronizing yeah. tap on the head. <laughs> <laughs> yes, extremely patronizing in my case. Oh, thank you for the kind thoughts from all of us. Poor, poor sad people that have birthdays the day after christmas <laughs> yeah or even worse till christmas day i guess yeah true yeah could be worse could be worse well i do appreciate that ivor and uh yeah let's see what else did we have that was very special in a very sarcastic sad way <laughs> in um, ivor's way yes in ivor's way um Let's see. We talked about. Oh, you know, I'm, I mentioned just briefly about some playing cards, and I wasn't ready to talk about this, and really not much more ready than last time. Except this time, I can tell you that I have a um, a URL that you can go to to see this. So, uh, one of our community members, uh, JP Kiernan Lewis, out in Southern California, he was at our meetup that we had uh, with Stephen Ivy and myself and some others at the. Um, Ballast Point Brewing Company, and um, so I got a chance to catch up with JP for a bit. Um, we had some great beer and some appetizers, and he told me about this venture. I think he, I think I knew about this before we had the meetup out in Southern California, but he said he he had these. Um, it's this little business venture he has going on. It's called uh, Runway or RWY playing cards. So you see it says RWY right there. So we all know what that means. It means it stands for runway. But on each of these, well, here's the uh, wild card. It's a, a tower, TWR. Uh, but they have um, um, different airport diagrams on the back of each of these cards. Here's one, Dallas Love Field, uh, Midway, MDW, and Wouldn't it uh, be Chicago? the front of the card? The or the front. Usually just oh, pen. that's true. That is the front or the, <laughs> the face of the card, I guess, would be uh, there you go. Yeah, the, even the most sure. appropriate way to express it. Thank you, sir. Uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, DTW, Detroit, Metro, Miami. So I went through these, and I think there's only one airport that I haven't – well, I've been to all of them, but um, one of them I've only been – uh, into as a jump seater or a passenger, and that is um, Orange County, Santa Ana, John Wayne, Orange County um, Airport in uh, Southern California. But every single one of these other cards I have been to in my career, so it was pretty cool. Anyway, if you that's very impressive. Uh, yeah. So you've been to the whole deck. I've been. Yeah, I've that's been you know domestic flying for most of my career, 
And so oh. you're bound to hit most of these places. And again, if you're interested in purchasing these, I'll, I'll have a link for you, but it's a Kickstarter project. Uh, RWY Card Co. Um, is the uh, search term that you can use or just look at the uh, URL that we're going to put in the in the uh, show notes for you. So check them out and give uh, JP some, uh, some love uh, and uh, cool. get your own. And I think, um, you know what I was going to do? I was going to share a tab so you could uh, see a little bit more about that. Let me see here. Share screen. See if I can find it. Chrome tab. And yeah, here we go. Share. Might as well do that since we have the technology to do that. Uh, that's from the uh, Kickstarter uh, website and uh, show some of the cards there. ATL is prominent in that uh, particular image, Portland, Oregon, etc. Um, so have you worked out if he, how he groups them, uh, any particular airports or all aces or all kings? Um, you know, I haven't paid that close attention to it. I'm sure there there's probably a rhyme or reason to the rhyme or rhyme and reason or whatever the term is for that. He does list all the uh, runway deck airports here. And in fact, I think even on the site, if I remember correctly, if you go down uh, and scroll down, you, you have, he has all the, um, the suits and the different cards and each of the airport diagrams. So we have the spades, hearts, diamonds, and clubs and uh, talks about, uh, from what they're um, made, and let's see, standard poker-sized playing cards, 100% plastic cardstock, a smooth matte finish that feels great in the hand, etc. So it looks like you can buy a, or you pledge $20 or more for one deck, or if you want to get two, which is a much better deal, just $30 for a wingman pack. You get two of these decks of cards and uh so anyway he sent he sent me two so we have some cards to play when i see you guys next on the crew and uh excellent yeah so uh if you all want to uh get your own please check out the kickstarter site and uh support jp kiernan lewis and his endeavors so there you have it good stuff and thank you for the gift jp all right uh, stop staring sharing the screen and let me make sure I there wasn't something else. Oh, yeah. You know, we talked about uh, Miklos um, had, in his spare time, um, made a, a, a watch, Apple Watch app called Plane Watcher. And I think I have, let's see if I have that also set up to uh, share. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. <laughs> I don't. Here, but that's all right. I can type it in quickly. Plane Watch. What did I say it was? Watcher. Dot app. And I was able to, uh, with Miklos's help, um, install it on my Apple Watch. And it's so cool. Just right there on your watch, and you you know, you see an airplane and you go, and you've seen the iPhone apps that are like this, uh, mm. where you can see what's flying overhead. And now if you have an Apple Watch, it's right there on your wrist and it shows you all of the uh, things that are flying above you. Here you go. There's the website flight tracking on the Apple watch, visualize airplanes, helicopters, balloons, etc. around you 
without having to reach well, for your balloons? phone. I know, even balloons. Can you believe it? Even, wow. <laughs> take some doing. So here's some. Uh, you know, you can't steer those things. They go anywhere. <laughs> That's what I've heard. Uh, yeah. yeah, we have a, what, what do they call it? Balloonatic uh, uh, is a prominent we member do. of our uh, our community, uh, Grant McCarran, down, uh, down under. And uh, anyway, so there you go. I just wanted to mention, uh, again, uh, Miklos's uh, Plane Watcher app and the fact that it works like a charm. And I was able, even I was able to figure out how to install it on the Apple Watch. So Good job. just wanted to mention that as well. And I think that that was all I had on my little cheat sheet of things to talk about. You had a great Christmas. Uh, got to see all my kids. And um, yeah, and I'm enjoying my birthday now. You're with singing all, up a storm. Singing up a storm. Yes. Thank you, Liz. Uh, as many people know that have listened to the show, I like to sing. And I sing, I'm involved with uh, some ensembles at my church. And on Christmas Eve day, there were, I think, 10 masses starting from, well, I had to get there at 9.15 in the morning for the rehearsal. Uh, I think the first mass was at 10, and the last one was at uh, the midnight mass. But I, I got that one off. She didn't make me stay all the way to midnight. Uh, she had it covered by uh, some other very, very um, uh, accomplished uh, vocal artists. Um, but uh, And then she did give me the the 12.15 mass off as well, so I was able to get home and grab a bite to eat and say hello to my son, who had just um, gotten in the night before, after midnight. So. Anyway, so I think it was like nine, eight or nine masses that I sang in on uh, the 24th. Wow. And uh, I love it. I'm surprised you still got a voice. I know, I did. You know, the, the nice thing is that, you know, we're not singing a heck of a lot. Uh, maybe one, two, three, four, like maybe four or five different different things uh, during each of the services. So it wasn't too bad. And I still had my voice at, at the end of it all. So had a great time. I love singing. It's like one of the things that brings me most pleasure in life. So. Uh, had a great time. Excellent. And uh, yeah, and the other thing that that brings me uh, incredible pleasure, of course, is the Coffee Fund and all of our great Coffee Fund members, Coffee Bar Club members. And so that means it's time for me to play this one here. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea, I love the APG community, coffee and tea, and the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, that's Jeff Smith, and he is singing the APG Java Jive, and a couple different ways that you can participate in the coffee fund. And that is the Coffee Fun Classic method and uh, the patron Patreon method. Uh, Liz, if you'll throw up the... <laughs> don't throw up. Let me rephrase that. Would you please display the Coffee Fun Classic? should be there on the overlay. Thank you. And since the last episode, Mazuz Karim, twice he sent in uh, an extra one for a nice Christmas uh, contribution. Thank you, Mazuz. Uh, Kareem, uh, Chris Randall, David Lieb, Nick B, Vigner Ornwanasan. I don't know what all those things are above some of those letters. 
uh, Era Ashburn and Jason Kuntz. I'll use the Coffee Fund Classic Method where you can make a one-time contribution or all these people have done it before, recurring contributions as well. The other way to do it is to become a patron via Patreon. Since the last episode, we have a new producer, Patrick McKenna. If you want to join these fine folks, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did, and we will too. Thank you, everyone, for your support. And now... It's time for feedback. Captain, incoming message. Thank you. All right, let's start with uh, Mike. Uh, he says, regarding Alex's feedback in episode 449, he was wondering how to handle a, uh, situational awareness and traffic avoidance when entering a straight-in approach to a non-towered airport after being released from air traffic control very very close to the runway. And just so that we can remember what uh, I have a little Alex excerpt to play here so we can kind of hear what uh, Mike is going to be addressing. And when I was about 10 miles from my destination, um, I was requested to change over to CTAF from the regional approach frequency and I was kind of told no, I think due to some traffic conditions that they wanted to keep talking to me for. And uh, eventually, it was about four miles from the destination airfield where they turned me over to CTAF and immediately kind of changed over, started making my calls, realized there was another aircraft about to turn base for the uh, same runway uh, where I was making my straight-in approach and and felt like I had lost a little bit of spatial awareness by – you know, checking in with CTAF so late and, uh, you know, we talked to each other. Okay. So that's kind of the, uh, little bit of the feedback that Alex sent in regarding his situation. And then Mike says, uh, the simple answer is don't do a straight in approach under VFR conditions. If there is traffic at the airport, there are a few reasons outside. There are few reasons outside of an outside of an emergency to do a straight in it's legal but it's bad form and poor manners alex was concerned about how close he was to the airport traffic when he finally got on the ctaf frequency in that case he most certainly should stay above the traffic pattern overfly the airport and set up for a standard 45 to downwind pattern that way there is enough time and separation to understand who's in the pattern where they are and how to avoid them and uh, he has an excerpt here from uh, Advisory Circular, circular 90-66B, uh, 9.5, straight in landings. The FAA encourages pilots to use the standard traffic pattern when arriving or departing uh, a non-towered airport or a part-time towered airport when the control tower is not operating, particularly when other traffic is observed or when operating from an unfamiliar airport. However, there are occasions where a pilot can choose to execute a straight-in approach for landing when not intending to enter the traffic pattern, such as a visual approach executed as part of the termination of an instrument approach. Pilots should clearly communicate on the CTAF and coordinate maneuvering for and execution of the landing with other traffic so as to uh, so as not to disrupt the flow of other aircraft. Therefore, pilots operating in the traffic pattern should be alert at all times to aircraft executing straight-in landings, particularly when flying a base leg prior to turning final. 
So he goes on to say, this is Mike now. Um, uh, so yes, it's legal to fly a straight in, but in Alex's case, it's not, if it's going to disrupt the local traffic or create a situation where aircraft, including his own, may be in closer proximity to other aircraft than the pilot pilots are comfortable with, uh, when there, then there is really no reason to continue the straight-in approach. When an aircraft is practicing IFR approaches during VMC conditions, we usually hear that pilot making announcements on the CTAF several miles out. So there's lots of separation and lots of warning. If an aircraft suddenly gets on frequency, as Alex described, only a mile, mile or two out and says they're on a straight-in, they're going to there are going to be some miffed pilots in the pattern. And what if there's an aircraft without a radio in the pattern? The straight-in aircraft hasn't given himself enough time to locate all the traffic in and around the pattern. Blue skies. And again, that's from Mike Smith, the Sonics guy from Boston. Nick, do you remember uh, Mike? We uh, met him at the uh, U.S. Air Force Museum. And um, uh, Most certainly, I yes. think he was. He, wasn't he also at Oshkosh, too? I think he was. Uh, yeah, I think he flew his Sonics all the way from Boston um, and made several stops on the way. I think, yeah, I think it was Mike Smith. Um, but anyway, for sure, at the uh, U.S. Air Force Museum, Mike uh, flew down from Boston to meet up with us in uh, in Dayton, Ohio. Basically, I think uh, what uh, Mike's getting at is that if you're left quite close to the airport, uh, that you're going to do a... Uh, and no radio or one of these, um, you know, no ATC uh, joins. Mm-hmm. Give yourself some time so you can don't have to join a pattern night. You can join overhead a bit high, uh, fly around a bit, pick everyone else out, make a few calls so everyone knows you're out. Don't rush to feed yourself into the pattern when you've only just uh, pitched up. So yeah. I think the onus is uh, it's, it's fine if you uh, if you end up getting a little close, just but just turn away from the airport for a while, give yourself some room. Mm-hmm. Um, just don't, yeah, uh, walk don't in, crowd uh, yourself. Walk in the house, get a feel for the place. Yeah, yeah see what's going on. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Good advice. Do a few aerobatics and uh, yeah. you know. do a big old loop over the top and then just yeah, uh, cut out of the loop, just uh, line up for yeah. a final and then land. No, wait a minute. That is not good advice. That's the way to do it. <laughs> That's the way to do it. That's the way yeah. Nick and I would do it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. All right. Very good. So, Alex, uh, hope that helps. Some advice from uh, one of our seasoned pilots in the APG community. And when I say seasoned, Mike, I'm not talking about your age. I'm much older than you are. Um, let's see. What do we have here? Oh, Glenn. From Wellington, New Zealand, our good friend. That's um, where the boots come from, the Wellington boots. Really? Are you sure? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. What about the beef? Does that come from Wellington as uh, well, beef Wellington? No, no, they haven't got, they, they haven't got that much taste. <laughs> I bet they have really good beef in Wellington, New Zealand. Uh, no, they have uh, sheep. They, they oh. only, only grow sheep over there, so they've got lots of lamb. It's funny-tasting beef. <laughs> have <laughs> Wellington lamb. Yes. All right. Well, he sent us in some feedback, and uh, let's hear what he has to say. Greetings and salutations. It's Glenn here from New Zealand with some feedback. Um, yeah, talking about helicopters, uh, and especially Navarro November, I mean, an amazing helicopter that was. And still is this amazing helicopter still. Um, I think I might have actually seen it in an Iraq. We were, uh, we were there just after the... Second, the Second Gulf War. I was British Army at the time, and we had some Chinooks flying in and out of the place. 
at various times. We tried to get our boss tried to get us a ride in one, but the the guys are like, "Well, it's the war zone, and you know, anything could happen." So, not a good idea. We did actually have a casualty at one time. A guy got killed in an accident, and um, his body got carried away in the back of a Chinook. So, didn't actually see if his brother in November or not. Another time, we were at a concert. Uh, they have concerts for the troops over there. And this Chinook would have had to land at the hospital, which was in our camp. And he did a just power takeoff and flew over our heads to something like 100 feet. And we're like, wow, this is so cool. You know, I have actually been in the Chinook uh, many, many years ago. Um, an army thing again, where we were on a two-week annual camp. And a Chinook pulled up, and they went, do you want to ride? And like, hell yes. So that was very interesting. So another onto the list. And Rick was saying about helicopter rotor blades stalling. Uh, the thing called a burp blade, which is British Experimental Rotor Programme. Uh, introduced, according to Wikipedia, in the late 1970s and mid-80s. And various helicopters got fitted with burp blades, including the Augusta AW01, the Western Superlynx, uh, the West, and the VH-71 Kestrel. So apparently it stops the blades uh, stalling at high speed. The Western Lynx actually still holds the all-time speed record for a helicopter at 401 kilometers an hour or if you prefer 249 miles per hour or 216 knots so there you go anyway uh that's about it really keep up the good work as always um and have a great christmas uh glenn out glenn has done some very interesting i was gonna say did you know that he was in the british army uh no I don't know if he was in the army or attached uh, as uh-huh. a contractor or what. We need to know more, Glenn. Yeah. Wow. I did not so. know this about you, sir. Um, that, yep. And actually, I don't. I think that's the first time I've listened to that feedback all the way through, and that kind of went, "What did he just say?" The British oh. Army and uh, involved in some contingency ops, that sort of thing. Interesting. Yeah. Love to know more, Glenn. Yes, Glenn. Please let us know. I guess next time we get to uh, uh, regale ourselves to some fine beverages uh, in in person, um, uh, sounds like you might have some stories to, to tell us about. Yeah, although I'm a bit worried that if he told us, he might have to shoot us. Oh, good point. Bit Maybe just back tell us what you can safely tell us without having to kill us. Uh, just so you have to wound us, you don't have to kill us. <laughs> well, I don't even think I like that That's idea, fine. Nick. But <laughs> anyway, well, thanks, Glenn. Uh, very, very interesting about the uh, Chinook and other details about your mysterious life. All right. Um, Dave sends us this. He says, I hope you are all well. Following the recent conversation and comments from Captain Nick on episode 451 around the Air Training Corps in the UK, it brought back many happy memories from my four years as a cadet. I joined 341 Preston Squadron ATC at the age of 14 after a brief spell in the Scouts. I originally joined as I was looking for a career in the RAF, and the cadets seemed like the best route to get some experience of uniform, drill, discipline, etc., I loved it from the day I joined. Cadets treat you like an adult, gave you responsibility, and offered so much more exciting and beneficial activities than the scouts ever could. 
I had many brilliant trips away, walking, climbing, canoeing. What is that word? Abseiling? What does that mean? Uh, you probably, yeah, abseiling. What is that? I don't know. I've never Dangling seen that. from a rope. Oh. That's when you walk down a, um, a cliff backwards oh. uh, with a rope in a, okay. in a clutch device. Wow. Yeah. I, I learn something new every day. Sometimes it's my name because I'm kind of losing my memory. <laughs> um, At your age now. All yeah. the, <laughs> thanks, Liz. You're older than I am. Uh, yeah, that's all true, the real adventurous and thrilling things I, cra I craved. It taught me discipline and respect so much so that my parents noticed a change in me, a change in me quite quickly. A summer camp in Gibraltar living in barracks was a partic particular highlight. I'm having trouble talking today. Uh, <laughs> noticed. <laughs> wow. A summer camp in Gibraltar living in barracks was a particular highlight. We got to see and do so much that would usually be off limits to most. One of the standout trips we had was to RAF um, Macrahanish. Macrahanish, which in the 1980s was being used by the U.S. Navy. Its long runway meant that it was a potential emergency landing runway for the space shuttle, and many B-52s flew in and out of there. The thing I oh I just learned today that one of the airports uh, very close to the airport that we landed in today here in Norfolk uh, Virginia Beach is uh, Oceana Navy Oceana and it has like a twelve thousand and some foot runway and three hundred feet wide um, and it's some kind of an alternate landing site for the space shuttle I, I never knew that anyway well, I never um, the thing I remember this is back to uh, Dave's uh, feedback the thing I remember the most was my first introduction to American candy and soda, particularly Mountain Dew. Oh, that's good stuff. I had never tasted anything like it. It was also my first experience of 10-pin bowling. At that time, it was only something I had seen in films and Happy Days. <laughs> and he gives us a um, link to a wikipedia.org article about Macrahanish. Um, Very good. Have either Captain Nick or Captain Jeff flown in or out of Macrahanish? <laughs> Obviously, I have not since I'm not, not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, Nick, I'm sure you have. Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, most certainly. Um, I can't remember if I took an F4 in there. I certainly did some circuits there since it was uh, in our West Coast diversion we might have used. But when I was instructing in Hawks out of RAF Valley and Anglesey, um, we used to, if the weather was really bad in Wales, we used to perhaps uh, send a deployment or just some aircraft up there, do a, a training mission up there, land, refuel and come back. Uh, or in fact, at one point, we spent a whole week up there uh, because uh, some really bad weather settled in and we uh, needed some decent weather for formation flying. I've got a few war stories about it, but uh, Macrahanish was always very um, accommodating, and there was a Royal Naval helicopter uh, base there uh, that offered accommodation and uh, let us use their uh, operations rooms and things, which was uh, very welcome. Uh, and uh, another thing, we frequently used to send up um, uh, a single hawk up there um, to bring home fish because they had the most fabulous uh, um, well, fisheries there. Hmm. So uh, they were great with for kippers and salmon and Dublin Bay prawns and all that kind of stuff. So uh, uh, some instructor who had a spare hour of uh, 
uh, training, uh, self-training. We're, we're given practice because, uh, quite honestly, when you're an instructor with good students, you didn't do a lot of flying yourself. So we got SCT, staff continuation training. We'd land there uh, and uh, get the local warrant officer to... Uh, bring up some fish from the harbour and uh, we'd do a bit of a deal, very cheap, uh, beautifully fresh, put it in the uh, locker in the base of the aircraft uh, and then come home at high level so it stayed very cold. And then uh, we'd have a feast, a very nice indeed. Hmm. Well, sounds like you have a lot of great stories. That, uh, Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about the day that we, we nearly took the arm off a fireman down there once. Uh-oh. Okay, is that like one of those things that you uh, will tell us about after you've had a few beers at the bar? Uh, probably, yes, probably. Okay. Uh, yeah, he got a bit close to a hawk that had on the runway with a supposed uh, fluid leak, and he nearly got sucked down the intake. So, uh, the hawk has a very small intake. He was lucky to uh, get away with it. Oh man! Speaking very of stories, here's a comment from Glenn Jeff. Okay, uh, Glenn has made a comment. 14 years in the British Army, seven years regular service, and seven years part-time. And another one. I did a six-month tour of Iraq back in 2003. Again, this is Glenn from Wellington, New Zealand. So would that mean, would you have to be a British citizen to be in the British Army? No, no, no. We, no? Uh, after we You'll get take anybody, guys huh? from Nepal. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the Commonwealth, uh, a different case. Uh, okay. we, I don't know whether we're Latin American uh, in the army. But uh, no, uh, don't forget we got Gurkhas from Nepal. Uh, that's, uh, you know, we uh, had many uh, Indian Sikhs uh, in, you know, in our time. So we've got people all over, from all over the world, join the, the British Army. The wow. Caribbean, lots of guys from the Caribbean in the army. Uh, looks like Mark Anderson uh, says he's landed a 172 at Macrahanish, now Campbelltown Airport. The runway was so long, we were stopped before the piano keys. <laughs> <laughs> you landed in the undershoot. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Good stuff. Um, so it was, there was, I think, a little bit more here. Um, oh, yes. Dave continues, Dave Lakeland. I guess the point of this nostalgic waffle is to express my gratitude to the Air Training Corps for the lessons it taught me and the experiences I had. I would encourage any young person or parents to look into it and try it out. My niece also spent five happy years in the ATC being promoted to cadet warrant officer, and she says it has given her invaluable experience. I never did make it to the RAF. The late 80s saw some cutbacks to the airframe technician role I was looking to do, and after passing my medical and my technical exams, it went quiet. 31 years later, I'm still waiting for that call. <laughs> Unfortunately, life, partying, and girls, at least it wasn't wasted, prevented me from actively pursuing it as I should have done, and I always wonder, what if? It remains my biggest regret in life. One last thing. I'm going to apply to be a contestant on the next series of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And I was thinking, with this exceptional knowledge that Miami Rick, let's see, with his exceptional knowledge, that Miami Rick would make a great phone a friend. But the only problem is you only get 30 seconds for an answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cut him off before he even has a chance to start the answer. Exactly. Uh, Thanks, yeah. one, uh, thanks once again for all you do, and I hope you and all your families have a fantastic Christmas and, in the very least, 
a better 2021 than this 2020. Kind regards, Dave Lakeland in Northwest UK. Thank you, Dave. Great feedback. And uh, Yeah, very good. I think we all agree with your uh, sentiments in the end there. Yes, absolutely. All right, with that, now it is finally time for the best part of the show and i think that uh y'all are going to get a kick out of this i know that i did and i'm i'm looking forward to listening to it again this week's plain tale a christmas story are you ready liz okay here we go the old pilot's plain tales a christmas story was the night after Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings that hung by the chimney with care were all cast aside now, young Rick had been there. The crew were all nestled, drunk in their beds, while visions of flying spun round in their heads. And Liz in her kerchief and Jeff in his cap had turned off their mics for a long post-show nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, they sprang from their beds to see what was the matter. Away to the windows they flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below, when what to their wondering eyes did appear but a damn great big Boeing full of podcasters, oh dear, with a big old pilot so lively and quick, they knew in a moment he must be old Nick. More rapid than eagles in Burner they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Neville, now Matt, now Owen and Carlos, Armando, now Micah, now Brian and Marcus. Come R.H. and A.G., now David and Mike, Launchpad and Grant, now Chuck and Stuck Mikes. Come, George, come, Max, come, Matt, and come, Andy. Now, Dave, Jeb, and Jack, now, James, and now, Amy. Come, Betty, with suitcase, and Carl, with careers. Come, listen to us, we just need your ears. Now, Max, to the fore, and Robert, and Benet, with Peter, and Steve, they have lots to say. There were many more, too many to name. I can't keep on going, or they'll all sound the same. Except that we saw young Pip and his pal, the wonderful Welshman, our Captain Owl. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Now talk away, talk away, talk away all. As leaves that for hawker hurricanes fly, when meeting an obstacle they pull up to the sky. So up to the housetop 
the podcasters flew with a plane full of noise and old Nicholas too. And then in a twinkling the crew heard on their phones the plosions and sibilance and each little moan. As they drew in their heads and were turning around, down the chimney old Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in red from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A travelling studio he'd flung on his back, and he looked like our Jeff just opening his pack. Jeff's eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. Steph's cheeks were like roses, her nose like a cherry. Rick's droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on Nick's chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a mike he held tight near his teeth, and an APG hat on his head like a wreath. Liz had a sweet face and a round little belly that shook when she laughed like a bowl full of jelly. They were happy and fun, right jolly old elves, and all laughed when they saw them in spite of themselves. A wink of Jeff's eye and a twist of his head soon gave them to know they had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word and went straight to his work, but a technical hitch stopped him with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose and nodding to Roger, on air the crew goes. Jeff sprang to his mic, to his team gave a whistle, and for hours they all talked like the down on a thistle. But I heard Jeff exclaim, ere he dove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and a Merry Christmas. Ho, 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 ho. Wow. <laughs> that was so great, Nick. That <laughs> Short was amazing. And sweet, sir. Short and Wait, sweet. I can't hear you. You're not in here. Let me add you to the stream so you can oh, be heard you. by <laughs> everyone. <laughs> I was just saying short and sweet this week because, uh, you know, Christmas is a busy time, but I enjoyed doing that one. Thanks. Oh, man. That was amazing. And, he was he was quite specific about all of the uh, selfies that we were to take of ourselves, um, and you know not knowing exactly what the script you know called for us, but uh, uh, very very wonderful <laughs> you, job. You were all very uh, generous uh, with your time, so thanks for that. <laughs> made, made it work wonderfully. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for doing that. And uh, yeah, as uh, someone said, this might become a Christmas tradition from now on. Um, <laughs> Anyway, that was that was a lot of fun. And by the way, you, uh, last couple of shots of me—that's what I got for Christmas. Did you see that amazing mixing board uh, behind yeah, it's me? Yeah, nice and, studio. Uh, they all those yeah. speakers. Uh, 
Yes, if uh, you can find that loose. That. <laughs> I think oh, a couple. One of him with his finger by his nose. Oh, no. Okay, got it. Yep. Yeah, look That's at that, huh? A nice mixing board, great monitors, and that mm -hmm. beautiful uh, floor-to-ceiling window. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what my backyard looks like. We got a little snow. Yeah, very snowy there. <laughs> yeah, that mixing board is brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, I don't know how you get that in your backpack, though. Well, I I have to leave that one in my home studio. I only have. Oh, I one. assumed it was a blow-up one. So. <laughs> no, that's something else. I. Carry, but uh, never mind. Um, yeah, uh, let's not go there. Yeah, let's not. Yeah, too much information, right? TMI. All right. Well, uh, thanks again, Nick. That was awesome. Really, really wonderful. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, Liz, you had a suggested uh, order for Starting me. With seven, I think, Jeff. Maybe. Which one? Seven. Seven. Yeah. Okay. Brian. Oh yeah. Let's see. Brian is essentially asking in his question, does size matter? Um, he says, I have a question about pilot pay versus aircraft size in airlines. Most airlines pay a higher hourly rate for larger aircraft. For example, a 737 pays less than an A350. Is a larger aircraft much more complex than or complex than a smaller aircraft to fly? I'm referring to that aircraft that mainline airlines fly, Boeing, Airbus, McDonnell Douglas, etc. A few airlines, like Emirates, pay the same rate regardless of the aircraft flown. Many pilots that fly wide bodies have more seniority with the airline. Is this the reason? Or is it to compensate for more responsibility and a more complex operation? Something else? I'm curious. Love the podcast and have been meaning to write in for a while. Thanks, Brian. So, Brian, the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> it really depends on the airline and the part of the world where the airline operates, etc. I think in, in many or most cases here in the U.S., uh, airlines operate on a seniority-based system, uh, and the way it's kind of an antiquated structure as far as how pay scales were developed. And, and it's, it's a kind of a convoluted formula. I don't think I, or maybe hardly anybody really quite understands it, but in general, uh, the, the size of the airplane at, at let's take Acme airlines, for instance, the size of the aircraft uh, determines the or establishes the captain's hourly rate. And uh, the first officer is in general about two-thirds of the captain's rate uh, for that particular airplane. And then, of course, when we had flight engineer or second officer positions, then it was another percentage of, uh, not that we had to split everything, but it's just the pay rates were based on the captain's pay rate tables for uh, each airplane, but it has it, it mostly has to do with the size of the aircraft, uh, the um, passenger capacity of the aircraft, which of course usually directly relates to the size. It also has there's something weird in the formula about the speed of the airplane. There's a another uh, variable and some other um, variables that I don't recall right offhand. But it's essentially, uh, for Acme, we can go in and look in our uh, pilot working agreement and look at a page that has all the airplanes that we have in the fleet. Um, it also has something to do with longevity as well. So the first year pay rate for a captain on a, let's say a 727, which of course we don't fly anymore, is this hourly rate 
uh, for the second year, it bumps up a little bit more. The third year, it bumps up even more. And then for Acme Airlines, I believe our pay scale or pay rate tables uh, max out at 12 years. So if you have 12 years or more um, with that particular airline, then uh, that hourly rate's never going to change. Well, it's not going to change for that time frame. And as we negotiate our contracts for um, you know the next contract, then we'll negotiate the uh, pay rates to be paid based on the size of the aircraft. And so I'm flying... Basically, one of the, or not one of the, it is it is the smallest airplane in the fleet. I think that uh, the, um, what are we calling it now? The Airbus 220 um, is about the same size, but for some reason gets a little bit more pay. <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe because it's newer. I don't know. Maybe it's because it's an Airbus. And uh, no, it's not. It's not really. <laughs> but okay, let's say it is. Uh, just like the uh, airplane that I fly. Um is not really a Boeing, but let's just say it is. Um, but uh, I could fly on the uh, one of the wide bodies, a captain on one of the wide bodies, and make um, a higher hourly pay rate. Um, but the airplane that I fly now, which is kind of at the lower end of the scale, the pay the captain hourly pay rate is less. But then I can make up for it for because of my great seniority on it. I can fly an extra one or two day trip and kind of get pretty close to what I would be making on the the heavy metal. And that way I can still make roughly about the same amount of pay and maybe not quite exactly, but I uh, can do what I enjoy doing, which is doing the shorter trips, uh, you know, being in the same time zone or maybe one or two time zones away, as opposed to doing all that international flying. And uh, there are some other people that go, yeah, I'd rather not ever do that domestic type of flying that Jeff's doing ever again. And I'd rather fly the, the heavy metal and do the long, the long haul stuff and have those uh, layovers in Paris and, and uh, all those other wonderful places to have layovers in the world. So, you know, the nice thing about it, at least in, in this kind of an airline uh, seniority based system is that uh, whatever you like to do, as long as you have the seniority, you can do it. Now, Nick's, previous or former airline, um, you had a completely different type of system based on what longevity and your position. That's right. Yes. You got paid a different rate. If you were a uh, second officer, first officer, senior first officer or captain. So, uh, that was, uh, what your pay was based on your rank. And then you got to increment uh, incremental pay increases uh, for uh, 10-12 years, something like that, and then it plateaued. So it didn't matter how long you spent uh, in that rank, you got paid the same. Uh, and it didn't matter which uh, airframe you were on. So for a while, we were flying everything from 320s up to uh, 747-400s. And uh, whatever airplane you're on, you just got paid by your rank, not by what you flew, mm-hmm. um, which was, I thought, uh, you know, a very fair system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, it meant that, uh, you know, you didn't have to try and bid onto an airplane to just get more money. Um, and everyone was very content to fly what they were flying. I think the system of uh, pay for aircraft type probably grew up in the uh, very early days of flying airliners when, you know, there were a lot of air- airlines had quite small aircraft, little twin 
piston aeroplanes, but they also had a few really big, expensive air- aircraft like, uh, you know, uh, Britannia or uh, a few jets like the 707. And those top pilots who were picked to go and fly those big jets um, were, you know, uh, expected to carry a lot of responsibility and had a lot of um, ability because they were like the first generation of airline pilots to fly those aircraft. Uh, I expect it it goes without saying that they were given more money to do that particular job. Nowadays, I think, uh, an aircraft is an aircraft, whether it be an Airbus A350 or an A320. The cockpits are very similar. The job is just about as complex. Uh, There are different, obviously, there are different uh, training requirements if you're doing long haul for short haul, but no one's going to tell you that a short-haul pilot has an easier time i certainly don't think he does than a long-haul pilot um so and i don't think it's fair personally but uh, to pay people differently um but of course uh you know these things have been built up and they're historical inside an airline and you know it's it would take heaven and earth in some airlines to change the system so yes. uh, you know you just have to put up with it i'm afraid uh, it puts me out of the thought that British Airways, I remember chatting to uh, John, the BA uh, Concorde captain that uh, I interviewed once. Um, I asked him what the pay was like, and he said, uh, uh, actually, we got paid less than, say, a 747 captain to fly Concorde. Uh, And that was really based around the fact that most pilots got paid uh, an increment for their flying hours. And the flying hours on Concorde were very small oh, in wow. comparison with the long-haul BA uh, 747 guys because they flew like 10 or 12-hour flights. Everything you did in a Concorde was about three or four hours. So, uh, well, how, so going uh, fast was got, like a, a detrimental thing. <laughs> it was, absolutely. So when they took on their pay packet, they didn't actually get that much money in there in comparison. Well, you know, in, in our the system that we have at Acme, it's like, you know, we essentially get paid by the minute. So, you know, the more minutes you're airborne, the more, more you're going to get paid. Of course, there are some other calculations in there in credit and that kind of thing. Otherwise, you know, Southwest can't get paid like that because they yeah. taxi around doing a million miles an hour. They, if they did get paid by like be, that, they wouldn't be taxiing so darn fast all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They'd be crawling out there. I think they did get some kind of a, I don't know exactly how their system works. So I'm not even going to say it because I'll probably be wrong. Uh, it, it's funny you mentioned um, BA. Um, I think it was British Airways that um, we. I remember as a uh, relatively new pilot at ACME on the 727 panel, uh, we were at uh, the A concourse in Atlanta, and I heard on the radio at that time all the international flying was out of the T concourse, the terminal concourse. And I heard these young voices on the radio calling for their uh, clearance. This is before pre departure clearances and that kind of thing. And, uh, uh, and I, I thought, wow, I made some kind of a comment like, Wow, you know that's that's a very young sounding voice that I'm hearing on the radio, and I think the first officer turned around and said, "Well, you know how that works for them, don't you?" And I said, "No," and they said that they they don't get paid on the the size of the airplane or long haul versus short haul; it's just longevity and and their position. And the uh, the young people are the ones mostly doing that long haul flying, and 
the older, more senior pilots are the ones flying in country, you know, in, in the UK and um, flying the kind of trips, the kind of flying that I do. And, uh, and they get, they get the higher, highest amount of pay and uh, the younger people flying all the long haul stuff don't get paid as much. And I'm thinking, well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, the younger people flying that long haul stuff seems right to me, but well, as you I said, I've seen that in my experience, most of the long haul guys I bumped into were the older chaps, oh. but uh, I mean, things may have changed over the well, years. It, I don't know. Perhaps if we've got a BA pilot listening, he can yeah. write in and Let tell us, us how they get paid. It could be that I'm just not recalling that whole conversation correctly because it was quite some time ago, 32 years ago. By the way, I did. I think I mentioned on the previous episode that I just celebrated my 32nd anniversary uh, with uh, Acme. So uh, been around for a while. So who knows what I what I was hearing. What, what do they give you after 30 years? Did they give you a, a clock or a gold watch or something? I think. Um, I think it was like after 20 years they got they gave me a clock. Uh, or uh, my choice of a couple different things. Uh, but um, since that, every year or every, shoot, I hope I get this right. I think it's every five years we get like a, a special Acme pin with um, with some kind of a jewel in it. And my, my last one had uh, a couple of diamonds and a, and a emerald, I believe. Uh, don't quote me on that. Um, I used to wear it like as a tie tack. Um, but I, I think it must be at home somewhere. I don't, I don't have a tie tack on me today, but, uh, anyway, um, yeah. And, uh, after 32 years, they try to give you a boot, um, a boot, uh, out of the airline. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's what all the younger pilots want. They yeah, want to give they me want your seat <laughs> here. Drink this, Jeff, get out of my seat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, so interesting discussion. Um, you know, naively, I thought that everybody's, you know, pay system is the same as all the major legacy airlines uh, here in the U.S., but I, clearly I was wrong. <laughs> One of many, many times that I've been wrong in my life. So interesting question, though. Hopefully that gave you some sort of an answer. And uh, let's see. Let's move on. So this is item number nine, Nick, from Ara grateful for your podcast. Hi, Jeff and crew. I'm thrilled to have come upon your show and I want to share what it means to me. I have a somewhat complicated aviation history with highs and heartbreak. It began when in fourth grade, my uncle took me flying in a small plane. The weather turned bad during our flight and he gave me the controls and guided me to keep her straight and level. He was impressed at my ability to do so and I was hooked. For my 12th birthday, I chose to lie on the bank of the Adler Planetarium and watch the planes take off from Miggs Field. As I lied there, I dreamed of the day I would fly a small plane and take off and land at that airport on the edge of Chicago, of Chicago and Lake Michigan. <laughs> By the way, I'm going to pause for a moment. Uh, as we probably most of us know, that airport is no longer there. What is it, Mayor Daly that... Uh, in the middle of the night, brought in a whole bunch of um, tractors and excavation Bulldozers. machines and completely destroyed uh, that little airport there, Miggs Field. Yeah, Liz, was that is that right? I just said bulldozers, yeah. Yeah, bulldozed the uh, the whole airport. In fact, uh, did not 
let anybody know that that was going to happen. And there were several airplanes that were actually stranded there because they didn't have mm -hmm. a runway to take off on. Um, anyway, I, I digress. I took my first flying lessons at Tri-Cities, TRI, continued in Chicago, and thrillingly land, landed at MIGS uh, on my 33rd birthday. But soon I realized that this dream was going to crash and burn because I take a medication that is on the no-fly list. This medication is a mental health medication, so it is ironic as it makes me safe to fly. Despite support from my doctors and my instructors, an expensive legal battle the FAA denied me. Even when the recreation license was created, it stipulated unless one has been previously denied a medical. So now connection to the aviation can be both a joy and a heartache. Riding in a B-17 at Oshkosh brought me great joy, but talking to the 99s, knowing I would never join them, brought great heartache. Your podcast has turned out to be one of the joys. I find the new segment fascinating, and listening to you, Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, and Miami Rick share stories have brought me back into the aviation community. As I'm going to sleep, I'm able to hang out with people who love the skies. Oh, I knew it. I knew she used our show to help her sleep. <laughs> you're, you're not the only one. Most huh? people do. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people do. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> As I'm going to sleep... I'm able to hang out with people who love the skies and all the things, planes, and uh, I'm not even having to worry about the cost of lessons, hangar space, or fuel. Thank you for bringing aviation back into my life. Best to you and the crew, Ara Ashburn. And she is in Chicago, obviously, because of Migsfield. And by the way, um, she has some links here, um, one of which is her portfolio. She is a, 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 a wonderful artist. Um, it's artworkarchive.com, and uh, you'll find her there, Aria uh, Lucia or Lucia. I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name. Um, she also has her, her Twitter and Instagram IDs and Facebook. So um, I'm assuming it's okay, Ara, that we share that with everyone. Um, because you included it in your feedback. So we'll have that in the show notes if you want to connect with Ara. Um, just stunningly beautiful, um, what would you call that, um, watercolor? Watercolor? Is that the kind of style that she, I'm not sure if it's oil or watercolor, but anyway, whatever it is, it's really, really beautiful. So please check out her uh, portfolio. It looks like watercolor. It's uh, sort of uh, perhaps charcoal uh, or Pencil with uh, watercolor overlay. Okay. Let me see. I'm going to copy this. Very dramatic. Yeah. Let me see if I can share that with everybody since we have the ability to do that. And we can actually see a picture of Ara. Uh, okay. Going back over here and uh, I'm going to share my screen. And which tab is it? I think it's going to be this one here. Share. There we go. Can you see that? Is that being displayed for everyone? Yes? No? Uh, yep. Okay. Yes. Uh, thank you. Um, look at that. Isn't that beautiful? It's very, I don't know, almost haunting. Pardon me, Liz? Very evocative. Evocative, yeah. Emotions. Yes. Look at that. And that's just the first page of her portfolio. And there's Aura, a beautiful person. So thank you very much for sending in the feedback. I'm glad 
that our show is a source of uh, joy and not heartache. <laughs> but hang around long enough, Ara, and I'm sure that we'll provide. I'll provide um, some heartache for you. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, wasn't she saying it helped her sleep at night? Yeah, it helps. Yes, yes, Liz. Yeah, she did. We mentioned that it does help her sleep at night. We'll look on the screen there. Yeah. Oh wait, who can blame look? her? Oh, so I see. Okay, <laughs> sorry, didn't have the didn't have the window up with the yeah. See, it helps us sleep as well <laughs> while we're actually recording the show. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, wake up, huh? Where am I? Who are you people? Anyway, uh, all right, and uh, yes, ma'am. Twelve. Thank you. All right. Number twelve. Yes. Uh, You've got about half an hour left. Just a okay. Little more. Good. Want to make sure that we get 14 in too. Okay. Yeah. Um, this is from Texas and Lashock. Christmas greetings. Greetings, Captain Jeff and APG crew. Hope you are all doing well and had a wonderful Christmas and holiday season. The other night, my family dragged me out for some caroling. And as we made various stops at friends and neighbors, I love caroling. That's so much fun. Anyway, um, excuse me. I noticed a plane of some kind flying around. It was dark, so I couldn't make out its profile, but it didn't sound like the usual general aviation traffic. I eventually found out that it was a B-25, most likely from the Commemorative Air Force. It used to be the Confederate Air Force, but I think now they call it the Commemorative Air Force, CAF, that was taking people up on 20 or so minute flights around town, letting them see the Christmas lights from the air. That sounds like a very cool thing to do at Christmas time, and I wish I'd known that. I would have jumped on that in a heartbeat. Thanks for answering my question about individual aircraft in your fleets. It reminded me of something I noticed a while ago. I am a lover of puns, and I found that the registries for Virgin Atlantic tend to be full of them. For example, you know, they're full of a lot of stuff, actually. For example. <laughs> <laughs> For example, the oft-mentioned Bubbles had the registry Victor Foxtrot India Zulu, V. Fizz. Another, Sleeping Beauty, was V. Nap, and it goes on. Scarlet Lady, V. Red. Uptown Girl, V. NYC. Queen Bee, V. Bzzz, B-Z-Z. I think my favorites are three 747-400s registered Vast, V. Big, and VXLG. It kind of makes me wish they had taken on the A380s that they ordered because I'm fairly certain one of them would have been registered VXXL. <laughs> You're probably right. Merry Christmas Absolutely. and Happy New Year to you all. May 2021 see an end to all the craziness of the past 12 months. This is Texas and Lashock, now back in Texas for good, signing off. Yeah. Did you have anything to do with The one I used that? to like the best out of our airline was, um, uh, we used to name a lot of them after ladies. So, uh, you know, there was uh, one named uh, the Lady in Red, I think. That's the one that Princess Diana uh, christened. But um, the one, my favorite, was uh, Maiden to Lose. So that was a bit of a play on words, I thought. Ah, very cool. Mm. I love the uh, the clever people over there at uh, Virgin. Yeah, they had a whole team. I think used to sort out those registrations. Mm-hmm. Very cool. 
Well, Texas and Lashok, thank you for the Christmas greetings and Merry Christmas to you as well. And looking forward to a great new year. Um, Liz? 14. Thanks. Okay, here we go. Um, This is from retired Captain Dave. And he says, "Um, I'm not a professional speaker. This is my first try at something like this. If it's not up to standards, well, Dave, I mean, we have very low standards here, so no problem there. Um, And you desire (laughs) to use the story, (laughs) then by all means, please read the script I have also included. I'm not going to read your script. You, um, he originally sent me this um, in as a script and I told him, you know, it would be nice to hear your voice. And so he uh, recorded some audio for us and uh, we're going to go ahead and play it right now. So hang on. Let's, this is the debut of retired captain Dave. Hello to the entire APG crew and followers of APG. What follows is a re-examination of an event that continues to haunt me even to this day. The day was September 18th, 2004. The weather in London was cavalcade, and we were preparing to depart for Chicago O'Hare's International Airport with 245 passengers and a crew of 16. We all had a good layover, plenty of sleep, and were prepared for our homeward-bound flight. The pushback was normal. The taxi to the runway was as expected, as there were numerous aircraft departing for their westbound international flights as well. The takeoff, climb, and cruise were all satisfactory, and our Boeing 777 was performing quite well. We passed Benbecula, or Benbecula, on our way to pick up the North Atlantic track system, which would lead us past Iceland, the southern tip of Greenland, and then across northeast Canada and down into the United States. We said our goodbyes to Shamrock Oceanic and eventually contacted Gander Oceanic on the HF radio. Things were going brilliantly, until they weren't. Cruising at flight level 360 with blue skies, and after seeing the southern tip of Greenland pass off our right, we arrived at 59 degrees north and 050 degrees west where I began to see a traffic symbol on my navigation display. This traffic was crossing the tracks from southwest to northeast. It appeared they were going to cross our track. This crossing would be unusual, but not impossible, as some aircraft fly a random route instead of flying the track system. But the problem was that this traffic was climbing. I looked at the first officer's navigation display and I did not see any traffic symbol on that screen. This puzzling scenario reminded me that when the TCAS 2 system was first introduced, we would experience occasional displays of phantom traffic symbols that would disappear within a short period of time. Usually these phantom targets were at our location, yet this one was being displayed elsewhere. As we watched this traffic continue to climb through flight level 340, it also appeared that we were on a direct collision course with each other. Astonishingly, we received a TCAS-2 alert, and the target turned yellow. They were still climbing directly toward us. I was familiar with this scenario from recent simulator training. In anticipation of an impending TCAS resolution, I disconnected the autopilot in preparation to follow the commands that might be coming. 
The TCAS resolution followed shortly. Descend, descend now, was the oral warning that was now filling the cockpit. Thankfully, we did have the TCAS-2 system and the IVSI turned red with a smaller green area commanding a descent. Previous training reminded me that I could smoothly push the yoke forward and follow the commands while keeping the descent rate within the green band. The first officer and I were both looking out the window during this descent, but we were unable to locate the target aircraft. Climb, climb now was the new command that filled the cockpit. Apparently, the target aircraft pilot noticed the aluminum overcast he was headed towards and decided to descend. Our TCAS system noticed his action and we began to climb back and away from him. Just as I was established in a stable climb with a vertical speed indicating in the green portion of the IVSI, I looked out the left window to see a Mitsubishi Diamond Jet passing 500 feet below in a rapid descent. That was a close call. Once re-established at our assigned altitude, it was time to notify Gander and report the near miss. Gander said, there is no one else out there. Was it a military plane? No, sir, I said. It was a corporate diamond jet. I predicted that, based upon the direction he was going and his estimated fuel state, he was either headed to Sandestromfjord or Narsarsuak. Gander responded, well, I do have a diamond jet going to Sandestromfjord, but he just reported level at flight level 240, and he can't go any higher because he's not RVSM equipped. That's reduced vertical separation minimum. Well, he is here at flight level 360 now, or at least he was until he saw me, I added. Long story short, TCAS 2 saved us that day. We missed each other. A near-missed report was filed on the suspected aircraft. The reason the traffic symbol was not displayed on the first officer's nav display is because that is a selectable item on the EFIS control panel. The International Relief Officer had recently replaced the first officer in that seat, and apparently the first officer had never selected that display on the EFIS control. At the end of the flight, I briefed the flight attendant crew regarding the incident. They reported they never knew anything had happened. No coffee spilled. Perhaps the pilot on the Diamond Jet thought there would not be anyone else out there over the North Atlantic and just wanted to see what his new airplane could do. Or perhaps he was distracted by other duties. We will never know. All I know is that I was very happy to be equipped with a TCAS-2 system on that flight. Fly safe and enjoy your trips wherever they take you. I'm retired Captain Dave, Acme Airlines. Thank you, retired Captain Dave, and I'm so happy to have you as part of the APG community. And there are a lot of people out there, by the way, listening that wish that I were uh, retired Captain Jeff. Including me at times. When I was in training in October, I was thinking, I should be retired Captain Jeff and not here in the schoolhouse trying to figure out this new airplane. Um, uh, we got to have a few people on the show who are actual airline pilots, you know, Jeff, otherwise. I know. What we'll are we going to do? Bit, uh, 
a retired uh, airline pilot guy. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but uh, Dave, you uh, you sound like uh, you're a professional um, broadcaster. Actually, um, you, you, it won't be long before Captain Dave has his own podcast. I, I'm predicting. Oh yeah, Luke great was very job! Good. I love the story. Oh. Uh, I've got a third possibility. Uh, he wasn't allowed up there, but he wanted to go up there to save fuel, so uh, he just yeah. climbed up there anyway. I think that that's probably the, yeah. If he, uh, what was the reason he said that he couldn't go above twenty four because of oh because of he uh, RVSM, wasn't RVSM yeah. equipped. Yeah, I'll bet. And who? So and, he just cheated. Yeah, who who would notice you know a tiny little jet like that? <laughs> But if well, I'd been him up there, I would have flown at a rather odd level, so, you mm-hmm. know, at least halfway between two levels. So. Or tra- or a different track or like offset or something, uh, just in case. Yeah, but he wouldn't know what the tracks were, probably because oh, he true. was headed across them. Okay. Mm. Um, also, uh, well done, um, Dave, uh, for performing the TCAS um, resolution advisory maneuver the exact way you're supposed to do it nothing abrupt and uh, the fact that your flight attendant crew didn't even notice um, obviously uh, you know says a lot that uh, a great job thanks again Dave for the feedback it was great and uh, look forward to hearing more from you in the future and now yeah, that was a good story yeah yep yeah I wonder if they ever did find out uh, what happened there or if that was all just well i hope they hung the bloke out uh to dry because uh he shouldn't yeah. be up there if he's not allowed uh this one from steve thank you for the plane tales uh greetings i've been retired for 15 years from a life of mostly fun and interesting flying i went active duty u.s air force in 1965 two tours to vietnam First one, B-52s, 1967. Second, forward air controller, or FAC, in i flying O-2s, and he's a terrible airplane in military and civilian modes, and living in the bush with the Army 1968 through 1969. I left the service when they offered me a third tour and flew 32 years for a U.S. government contractor. I stumbled across plane tales while searching for new podcasts. I've enjoyed every one I've listened to. So, thank you. And this is uh, from Steve. Ooh, Machlen? Machlen? I'm not sure how you. M A E C H T L E N from Albuquerque, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Very good. Thank well, you, Steve. Ever so nice of you, Steve. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, little comments like that uh, make it. Uh, all the easier to push them out every week. So I really do appreciate that. Yeah, he, he does a lot of work on these. And um, we should also mention that you can subscribe to the Plain Tales as a separate podcast feed if you'd write, uh, like to have them all together in one place. And uh, information about that's on the website. Just look for the page we have for the Plain Tales. And uh, Nick also puts in additional information uh, regarding the particular plain tale and uh, photos and other good stuff in there as well. So he puts a lot of hard work into it and we all appreciate it. And uh, as a, I enjoy it. Labor of love. Yeah. Number four. Oh yeah, this is a good one. Um, Jake from Winnipeg uh, sent us some audio feedback. So let's 
have a listen. Hey there, APG crew. This is Jake from Winnipeg here. No, not Jake from State Farm. Though, I am actually wearing khakis at the moment, so I guess it might fit. Anywho, um, I've been a long-time listener. I've been listening to the show, I think, for about three and a half years now. I've sent in other feedback, or just one piece of feedback. I had a question about uh, what happens to passengers when they get dropped off on a medical diversion. Anywho, you guys have been a great, great wealth of knowledge in terms of learning more about aviation and learning random things. Uh, I currently work as a dispatcher at one of Canada's largest privately owned flight schools. Um, it's called Harv's Air. We're based in Manitoba. There's two bases and I think we run about 38 different airplanes. But uh, I want to send you guys a message and say thank you for filling my brain full of knowledge. I know quite often things like the uh, pilot's tale from episode 450 where where uh, Captain Nick mentioned the change in the shape of the flap and gear handle in the uh, B-17 after all those incidents. I'm able to suddenly pass that knowledge off to, to other students that are learning how to fly and stuff like that. Anywho, I wanted to actually throw in a little connection to, to what I hear on the APG. Um, with Dana not being on the show all the time, obviously we don't hear about Crown Royal as much. But every time we hear Dana talk about Crown Royal here, we get excited. So the little airport we're based out of, Charlie Yankee Alpha Victor, uh, we're located in the middle of Canada and we're about 40 nautical miles south of Gimli. So Gimli you might remember from the ill-fated 767 that landed there with no gas. So Gimli is a small town, it's about 1,200 people I believe, but it's also home to where they distill Crown Royal. So about two nautical miles north of the Gimli airport is a giant facility in this little itty bitty town where all the Crown Royal in the world is made. So every time I hear Crown Royal on the show, I get very excited because it's so close to home. Um, so I just wanted to thank you guys. You guys do an amazing job. You, you pass along info in a very conversational, happy, fun way. And it's, it's awesome for people that are pilots, people becoming pilots. And I also wanted to say happy holidays to you all. You guys do a great job. And I just wanted to thank you for providing me with so much knowledge, so much entertainment. Uh, I have an hour-long commute both ways to and from work. So I just wanted to say, hey, thank you. Keep up the great work. You guys are awesome. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, all that good stuff. Happy New Year's, and hopefully we'll be back on a clearer path to, to normalcy next year. Uh, but, yeah, keep up the great work, and thanks so much. Jake from Winnipeg out. Who are you talking to? Uh, it's Jake. Jake. Jake from State Farm. He, he does sound like the Jake from Steak Farm commercial. It sounds exactly <laughs> like him. No, I don't hear that advert very often. But yeah. uh, even I go in, oh, that's Jake from State Farm. <laughs> I think it really is Jake from State Farm. Um, in, on the screen, I'm sharing a photo uh, of the uh, Gimli plant for the uh, company that uh, That's is, the, uh, the green tree behind. That's the Gimli plant, is it? I think, <laughs> yeah, must be. I have no idea what even Gimli stands for. Do you, uh, Liz? Just a name as far I think maybe a native na uh, Aboriginal name. An Aboriginal name, perhaps. Okay. Yeah, I've heard of the Gimli Glider. Uh, didn't have. I had no idea that Crown Royal had their big distillery right there or very close by. That's very cool. Um, well, Gimli is a fictional character in J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth. Oh. Featured in the Lord of the Rings. Okay, featured in the Lord of the Rings. It's a fictional character in. Tolkien's Middle Earth. Middle Earth. Yeah. Gimli was Gimli. Uh, oh. one of the uh, little guys. What are they called? The the miners. I don't know. Uh, in Lord of the Rings. Oh damn! Do you think really that that's what this. the city was named for? 
No. Oh. Really? Well, then why did you tell me that, Liz? Now you've made us look like even more of a fuel. He was a dwarf. That's right. Kimberly was a dwarf. A dwarf. Okay. That's my aim. Thank you, Liz. You're succeeding in making me look really foolish. Thank you. Um, I usually don't need any help from anybody. No, I was just going to say that. (laughs) Shut up. All right. Wait a minute. Back it up here. Okay. First settlers were from Iceland, so it may have some Icelandic. First settlers were from Iceland, so they might have some kind of Icelandic origin, according to is, our uh, producer Is director. Greg still in the chat room? Is Greg, Greg still in the chat room? Haven't Greg. we got some feedback from him at number yeah, eight? Yeah, I'm going to do that next. Okay. Um, number eight. Here we go. From Greg, um, he is APG's biggest ass fan. <laughs> okay. Um Merry Christmas, God, and e- he works for the Big Ass Fan Company, in case you're new to the show and wondering why we're use- using such foul language. Um, hey, crew, Merry Christmas. Got an email from TSA today announcing their 2021 Explosive Detection Canine Calendar. Uh, since Nick is a dog photographer, I thought he would be interested in seeing this. Here's a link to the calendar. Enjoy. And let me pull this up. I should have gotten this already set up so that we could share that share it with the uh, people in the uh, live audience oh here we go let me go back here to this and share the screen and uh, there it is oh look at that what a handsome they're great aren't they handsome uh, dog that's a hungarian visla now i've got two of those one one is a smooth like this and the others are wirehead, but uh, this gorgeous dog's are smooth. Yeah, like... Um, In fact, uh, most of the dogs they use are either Hungarian Vizslas. There are three ways to pronounce Vizsla. Uh, Vizsla, Vizsla, uh, or Vis, uh, Vizsla. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, is that or German Shorthead Pointers. Uh, and I used to own a German Shorthead Pointer. Um, lovely dog. Yeah, beautiful dogs. Well, here's Ro- Roni. Gorgeous. Vizsla. Uh, uh, Vizsla. Um, let's see. There's uh, Kosoki. Not sure how to pronounce that name. C-S-O-K-I. A male uh, German short-haired pointer. That's GSP. So that's a German short-haired pointer. And here's another one. Uh, Janny. And... Let's see, that was March. Hunter is a uh, another German short hair. They must be really good at um, explosive detection. They've got great noses, absolutely. They're fantastic. They're, they're part of the breed, uh, HSP, Hunch, uh, HPS, Hunt Point, HPR, Hunt Point Retrieve. So basically they're hunting dogs. They've got great oh, noses. Cool. Here's a Labrador Retriever, Ron, looking pretty cash. They're usually very lazy Labradors. Uh, look that i mean he's lazing in the pool yeah uh, it's lazing in a pool that's typical labrador <laughs> and here's jade jane a female german short-haired pointer gorgeous look at that absolutely <laughs> gorgeous not really sure what to say about this one uh kayla or kajla another uh Vizla. um very provocative uh, photo there i mean i don't know um uh, yeah, I think being weighing herself, just checking, she's uh, not getting a bit overweight. There's another lab. 
Labr Labrador Retriever. That's a Dugoda. And uh, Ray, I guess, or uh, R-E-A, a female German Shepherd. Mm -hmm. And Lexa right. Alexi, a female German Shepherd. And uh, here's a male Labrador Retriever named Bank. He's making Bank. Uh, let's see. Here's a, another German short-haired pointer, Bella Bell. And, oh, that's so sweet. There's a, a picture of a <laughs> TSA canine handler, and uh, Avizla is um, giving him a big hug, or sleeping, or both. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. They, we we call them Velcro dogs, because they just love to stick to you. <laughs> that's funny. All right. So, uh, thanks, Greg, for sending that in. No schnauzers. I'm upset. Pardon me? Oops. I'm very upset there are no schnauzers there. Oh, yeah. Liz is upset there are no schnauzers in, uh, in that collection. Apparently, they're not good explosives detection dogs. Anyway. <laughs> Don't like getting blown up. Oh, Who Owen says... Up? Yeah, they're smart dogs. They don't want to be anywhere near explosives. <laughs> yeah, uh, the etymology right. of Gimli is likely the place protected from fire based on two old Nordic elements. Gimmer, which is fire, and <laughs> protected place. Here is also another explanation. Oh, we haven't gotten it yet. He's still typing as we speak. Um, all right. Thanks. That's, that's oh. a Norse thing happening there. A Norse yeah. thing going on there. Okay. Um, you know what? I think we'll end off with number 10. Okay, one more. Number... We've got a video, but you might want to set it up. Oh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> this is good. I'm sure that many of you have already seen this, but it's worth looking at again. And uh, it's there's a, a video clip. I guess, Liz, um, you can go ahead and, and play this um, because I think we can continue to... Um, excuse me. Okay, now I've have, I'm, my mic is unmuted, and you may unmute yours as well, Nick, if you want to add some commentary to this. That's uh, so this, cool. This is a, um, a caterpillar, a cat uh, excavator uh, at um, a, I think it's Florida um, executive, or Fort Myers executive, I don't know, it's a, uh, a, an executive type corporate air, airport. And it'd be spilling their champagne if that was an executive <laughs> yeah, jet. It's a it's a biz jet that is, uh, I guess, be about to be scrapped. And the operator of this uh, excavator has the um, the airplane. It almost looks like somebody's arm and hand holding the airplane as if it was a if it were a toy. Uh, back toward the uh, back of it and the, uh, the where the engines used to be. And it's just kind of twirling it around, going in circles. And I think I read something like, uh, "I'll bet the crane operator is making jet noises as he's um, as he's doing this." Brilliant, <laughs> so, isn't it? Yeah, just it's, spinning uh, it around like a model airplane. Yep, a lot of fun, a lot of fun, good stuff. All right, well, that's a good one to end on. And um, yeah, Liz, Liz made me aware of that, and I thought, yeah, let's throw it in the feedback and share that with everyone. I'm sure, as I said, I'm sure that many of you have already seen it, but uh, in case you haven't, um, and if you're listening to the audio only, please look for the show notes, and uh, it'll be in there, and you can see it yourself. And 
that is going to do it for today's episode. And uh, we have a wonderful website called the Airline Pilot. No, not the Airline. AirlinePilotGuy.com, where, as we mentioned, you can find more information about uh, each and every plane tale that uh, Nick puts all the work into, as well as the ABG library and uh, some other stuff. Uh, let's see. Over, where's that overlay? We can throw that up there and and uh, I can look at the menu and see what other things we got going on there. We have information about the crew and the community and merchandise and uh, the coffee fund, Plain Tales, APG Library. And calendar. I think I... Huh? Calendar. Calendar. Thank you. We have the calendar as well. So check it out, airlinepilotguy.com. We're also on social media, uh, what I like to call the social meds. And Nick is going to tell us all about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll read them when uh, okay. Liz pops them up there. Oh, there we go. Uh, well, on Facebook, we uh, can be found uh, at Airline Pilot Guy. That's our little name. And in Twitter, our handle is at APG Crew. That also works on Instagram as well, APG Crew. So that's where we are on the social meds. Come find us, and we will probably ignore you completely. I'm joking. Uh, we'll get back to you. <laughs> sort and of joking. Chat with you and <laughs> pass the time of day. Yes. Um, so that's where we kind of post uh, when we think we're going to be recording our episodes and that sort of thing. And uh, so check it out if you uh, if you'd like. And uh, we're also on Slack. We have a. Um, we have, you know what? Let me see if we have the guy that manages and came up with this whole uh, Slack thing here. Let me see if I can find the hidden microphone in my hotel studio bathroom. Hey, Hillel. Hillel, time for Slack. Okay, but I'm dripping wet. It's always dripping wet. Okay, so I'm going to move out of the way so he... You're getting water all over me. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Okay, thanks, Hillel. And next time, could you, like, wrap a towel around yourself or something, dry off a little bit? Yeah, you do too. <laughs> All right. So, can you tell his religion? Um, can't really say. Thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, until next. Oh, wait, whoa. Eh, hang on here. We need to do something very important. We have to. Whoa. Yes. That's too loud. Big round of applause for our producer well, director, Liz, Liz Piper, in great Toronto. Great handling of the uh, overlays tonight. Good job. Yeah, pardon me? I'm sorry. There's so much applause. I can I can't even hear what you're saying, Nick. I said uh, great handling of the overlays. Well done, Liz. Yes, very nice job. Thank you, Liz. Always as always. Yeah, when we're doing the plane tales, all those different um, pictures that you see being presented. If you're watching the video, um, Liz is controlling um, and doing a wonderful job of displaying those the right overlays at the right time. So. 
Thanks for all your hard work, uh, Liz. We do appreciate it. This isn't happening. Yeah, when when that's not happening, <laughs> that's the that's the best one I think of uh, of uh, Liz and I uh, snoozing <laughs> during the show, <laughs> or maybe after the show, or both. Anyway, um, thanks to all of you who are uh, here in our live audience. We do appreciate your presence each and every week. And uh, again, if you're new to the show, welcome. I think you're going to find the folks in this community are just uh, above above everything, above all. And uh, we love them very much. And uh, that's going to do it for this week's show. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho. Very good. Come on, Nick. Ho, ho, ho. day. Just fine. Airline.